If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Part 3, Chapter 8 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Toward the beginning of June, when everything was more or less satisfactorily arranged, she received her husband's reply to her complaints about her domestic tribulations. He wrote, asking pardon because he had not remembered everything, and promised to come just as soon as he could. This had not yet come to pass, and at the end of June, Darya Alexandrovna was still living alone in the country. It was midsummer, Sunday, the feast of St. Peter, and Darya Alexandrovna took all her children to the Holy Communion. In her intimate philosophical discussions with her sister, her mother, or her friends, she often surprised them by the breadth of her views on religious subjects. A strange religious metempsychosis had taken place in her, and she had come out into a faith which had very little in common with ecclesiastical dogmas. But in her family, not merely for the sake of example, but in answer to the requirements of her own soul, she conformed strictly to all the obligations of the church, and now she was blaming herself because her children had not been to communion since the beginning of the year, and, with the full approbation and sympathy of Matryona Filimonovna, she resolved to accomplish this duty. For several days beforehand she had been occupied in arranging what the children should wear, and now their dresses were arranged, all clean and in order, flutings and flouncings were added, new buttons were put on, and ribbons were gathered in knots. Only Tanya's frock, which had been entrusted to the English governess to alter, caused Dolly great vexation. The English governess, in making the changes, put the seams in the wrong place, cut the sleeves too short, and spoiled the whole garment. It fitted so badly about the shoulders that it was painful to look at her, but it occurred to Matryona Filimonovna to piece out the waist and to make a cape. The damage was repaired, but they almost had a quarrel with the English governess. By morning all was in readiness, and about ten o'clock, the hour they had asked the father to give them for the communion, the children, in their best clothes and radiant with joy, were gathered on the steps before the Kalish waiting for their mother. Thanks to Matryona Filimonovna's watchful care, the overseer's brewery had harnessed to the Kalish in place of the restive Voron, and Darya Alexandrovna, who had taken considerable pains with her toilet, appeared in a white muslin gown and took her seat in the vehicle. Darya Alexandrovna had arranged her hair and dressed herself with care and with emotion. In former times she had liked to dress so well as to render herself handsome and attractive. But as she became older she lost her taste for adornment, and she saw how her beauty had faded. But now she once more found satisfaction and a certain emotion in being attractively arrayed. She did not now dress for her own sake, or to enhance her beauty, but so that, as mother of these lovely children, she might not spoil the general impression. And as she cast a final glance at the mirror, she was satisfied with herself. She was beautiful, not beautiful in the same way as at one time she liked to be at the ball, but beautiful for the purpose for which she now had in mind. 
There was no one at church except the musics and the household servants, but Darya Alexandrovna noticed, or thought she noticed, the attention that she and her children attracted as they went along. The children were handsome in their nicely trimmed dresses, and still more charming in their behavior. Alosha, to be sure, was not absolutely satisfactory. He kept turning round and trying to look at the tails of his little coat, but nevertheless he was wonderfully pretty. Tanya behaved like a grown-up lady and looked after the younger ones, but Lily, the smallest, was fascinating in her naive wonder at everything she saw, and it was not hard to smile when, after she had received the communion, she cried out in English, "'Please, some more!' After they got home, the children felt the consciousness that something solemn had taken place, and were very quiet. All went well in the house, till at lunch Grisha began to whistle, and, what was worse than all, refused to obey the English governess, and he was sent away without any tart. Darya Alexandrovna would not have allowed any punishment on such a day if she had been there, but she was obliged to uphold the governess, and confirmed her in depriving Grisha of the tart. This was a cloud on the general happiness. Grisha began to cry, saying that Nikolinka also had whistled, but they did not punish him, and that he was not crying about the tart, that was no account, but because they had not been fair to him. This was very disagreeable, and Darya Alexandrovna, after a consultation with the English governess, decided to pardon Grisha and went to get him. But then, as she went through the hall, she saw a scene which brought such joy to her heart that the tears came to her eyes, and she herself forgave the culprit. The little fellow was sitting in the drawing-room by the bay window. Near him stood Tanya with a plate. Under the pretext of wanting some dessert for her dolls, she had asked the English governess to let her take her portion of the pie to the nursery, but instead of this she had taken it to her brother. Grisha, still sobbing over the unfairness of his punishment, was eating the pie and saying to his sister in the midst of his tears, "'Take some, too. We will eat, too. Together.' Tanya was full of sympathy for her brother, and had the sentiment of having performed a generous action, and the tears stood in her eyes, but she accepted the portion, and was eating it. When they saw their mother, they were scared, but they felt assured, by the expression of her face, that they were doing right. They both laughed, and, with their mouths still full of pie, they began to wipe their laughing lips with their hands, and their shining faces were stained with tears and jam. "'Ye saints! My new white gown!' "'Tanya! Grisha!' exclaimed the mother, endeavouring to save her gown, but at the same time smiling at them with a happy, beatific smile. Afterwards the new frocks were taken off, and the girls put on their old blouses, and the boys their old jackets, and the Lenica, or two-seated Dotsky, was brought out, and again, to the overseer's annoyance, Broy was at the pole, so that they might go out after mushrooms and to have a bath. It is needless to say that enthusiastic shouts and squeals arose in the nursery, and did not cease until they actually got started for their excursion. They soon filled a basket with mushrooms. Even Lily found some of the birch agarics. Always before Miss Hull had found them and pointed them out to her, but now she herself found a huge birch chalupic, and there was a universal cry of enthusiasm. Lily has found a mushroom! Afterwards they came to the river, left the horses under the birch-trees, and went to the bath-house. Their coachman, Terenti, leaving the animals to switch away the flies with their tails, stretched himself out on the grass in the shade of the birches, and smoked his pipe. 
and listened to the shouts and laughter of the children in the bathhouse. Though it was rather embarrassing to look after all these children, and to keep them from mischief, though it was hard to remember and not mix up all these stockings, shoes, and trousers for so many different legs, and to untie, unbutton, and then fasten again so many tapes and buttons, still Darya Alexandrovna always took a lively interest in the bathing, looking on it as advantageous for the children, and never feeling happier than when engaged in this occupation. To fit the stockings on those plump little legs, to take the younger ones by the hand and dip their naked little bodies into the water, to hear their cries, now joyful, now terrified, to see these breathless faces of those splashing cherubimchicks of hers, with their scared or sparkling eyes wide open with excitement, all this was a perfect delight to her. When half of the children were dressed, some peasant women, in Sunday attire, on their way to get herbs, came along and stopped timidly at the bathhouse. Matryona Filimonovna called to one of them, in order to give her a sheet and a shirt to dry that had fallen into the water, and Darya Alexandrovna talked with the women. At first they laughed behind their hands, not understanding her questions, but little by little their courage returned, and they began to chatter, and they quite won Darya Alexandrovna's heart by their sincere admiration of the children. Ish twee, ain't she lovely now, white as sugar, said one, pointing to Tanya and nodding her head, but thin. Yes, because she has been ill. Bish twee, said still another, pointing to the youngest child. It seems you don't take him into the water, do you? No, said Darya Alexandrovna proudly. He is only three months old. You don't say so. And have you any children? I've had four. Two are alive, a boy and a girl. I weaned the youngest before Lent. How old is she? Well, she is going into her second year. Why did you nurse her so long? It's our way. Three springs. And then the women asked Darya Alexandrovna about the birth of her baby. And did she have a hard time? Where was her husband? Would he come often? Darya Alexandrovna was reluctant to part with the peasant women. So delightful did she find the conversation with them. So perfectly identical were their interests and hers. And it was more pleasant to her than anything else to see how evidently all these women were filled with admiration because she had so many and such lovely children. The women made Darya Alexandrovna laugh, and it offended Miss Hull for the very reason that she was the cause of their unaccountable laughter. One of the young women gazed with all her eyes at the English governess, who was dressing last, and when she put on the third petticoat, she could not restrain herself any longer, but burst out laughing. Ish twee! She put on one, and then she put on another, and she hasn't got them all on yet! And they all broke out into loud laughter. End of chapter 8「Part Three, Chapter Nine of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Darya Alexandrovna, with a kerchief on her head and surrounded by all her flock of bathers with wet hair, was just drawing near the house when the coachman called out, "Here comes some baron, Pokrovsky. It looks like." Darya Alexandrovna looked out and, to her great joy saw that it was indeed Levin's well-known form in grey hat and grey overcoat. She was always glad to see him, but now she was particularly delighted, because he saw her in all her glory. No one could appreciate her splendour better than Levin. When he caught sight of her, it seemed to him that he saw one of his visions of family life, 
you are like a brooding hen, Darya Alexandrovna. Oh, how glad I am, she said, offering him her hand. Glad, but you did not let me know. My brother is staying with me. I had a little note from Steva, telling me that you were here. From Steva, repeated Dolly, astonished. Yes, he wrote me that you had come into the country, and thought that you would allow me to be of some use to you, said Levin, and even while speaking he became confused, and breaking off suddenly, walked in silence by the Lenica, pulling off and biting linden twigs as he went. It had occurred to him that Darya Alexandrovna would doubtless find it painful to have a neighbor offer her the assistance which her husband should have given. In fact, Darya Alexandrovna was displeased at the way in which Stefan Arkadyevitch had thrust his domestic difficulties upon a stranger. She immediately perceived that Levin felt this, and she felt grateful to him for his tact and delicacy. "'Of course, I understand,' said Levin, "'that this only meant that you would be glad to see me, and I was glad. Of course, I imagine that you, a city housekeeper, find it uncivilized here, and, if I can be of the least use to you, I am wholly at your service.' "'Oh, no,' said Dolly. "'At first it was rather hard. "'But now everything has been beautifully arranged. "'I owe it all to my old nurse,' she added, "'indicating Matryona Filomenovna, "'who, perceiving that they were speaking of her, "'gave Levin a pleasant, friendly smile. "'She knew him, and knew that he would make "'a splendid husband for the young lady, "'and she wished that it might be so. "'Will you get in? "'We'll squeeze up a little,' said she. "'No, I will walk. "'Children,' "'Which of you will run with me to get ahead of the horses?' The children were very slightly acquainted with Levin, and did not remember where they had seen him, but they had none of that strange feeling of timidity and aversion which children are so often blamed for showing toward grown-up persons who are not sincere. Pretense in any person may deceive the shrewdest and most experienced of men, but a child of very limited intelligence detects it and is repelled by it, though it be most carefully hidden.' Whatever faults Levin had, he could not be accused of a lack of sincerity, and consequently the children showed him the same good will that they had seen on their mother's face. The two eldest instantly accepted his invitation, and ran with him as they would have gone with their nurse, or Miss Hull, or their mother. Lily also wanted to go with him, and her mother entrusted her to him, so he set her on his shoulders and began to run with her. "'Don't be frightened! Don't be frightened, Darya Alexandrovna!' said he, laughing gaily, I won't hurt her, or let her fall. And when she saw his strong, agile, and at the same time prudent and careful movements, the mother felt reassured, and smiled as she watched him, with pleasure and approval. There in the country, with the children, and with Darya Alexandrovna, whom he liked, Levin entered that boyhood, happy frame of mind which was not unusual with him, and which Darya Alexandrovna especially admired in him, he played with the children, and taught them gymnastic exercises. He jested with Miss Hull in his broken English, and he told Darya Alexandrovna of his undertakings in the country. After dinner, Darya Alexandrovna, sitting alone with him on the balcony, began to speak of Kitty. "'Did you know? Kitty is coming here to spend the summer with me?' "'Indeed,' replied Levin, confused, and instantly, in order to change the subject, he added, "'Then I shall send you two cows, shall I?' and if you insist on paying, and have no scruples, then you may give me five roubles a month. No, thank you. We shall get along. Well, then I am going to look at your cows, and, with your permission, I will give directions about feeding them. Everything depends on that. 
and Levin, in order to turn the conversation, explained to Darya Alexandrovna the whole theory of the proper management of cows, which was based on the idea that a cow is only a machine for the conversion of fodder into milk, and so on. He talked on this subject, and yet he was passionately anxious to hear the news about Kitty, but he was also afraid to hear it. It was terrible to him to think that his peace of mind, so painfully won, might be destroyed. Yes, but in order to do all this, there must be someone to superintend it. And who is there? asked Darya Alexandrovna, not quite convinced. Now that she carried on her domestic affairs so satisfactorily, through Matryona Filmanovna, she had no desire to make any changes. Moreover, she had no faith in Levin's knowledge about rustic management. His reasonings about a cow being merely a machine to produce milk were suspicious. It seemed to her that such theories would throw housekeeping into disorder. It even seemed to her that it was all far simpler, that it was sufficient, to do as Matryona Filmanovna did, to give Petrushka and Bielopaka more fodder and drink, and to prevent the cook from carrying dishwater from the kitchen to the cow. That was clear. But the theories about meal and grass for fodder were not clear, but dubious, and the principal point was that she wanted to talk about Kitty. End of chapter 9 Part Three, Chapter Ten of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Kitty writes me that she is longing for solitude and repose. Began Dolly after a moment's silence. Is her health better? Asked Levin with emotion. Thank the Lord, she is entirely well. I never believed that she had any lung trouble. Oh. I am very glad, said Levin, and Dolly thought that, as he said it, and then looked at her in silence, his face had a pathetic, helpless expression. Tell me, Konstantin Dmitrich, said Darya Alexandrovna, with a friendly, and at the same time a rather mischievous smile, why are you angry with Kitty? I? I am not angry with her, said Levin. Yes, you are. Why didn't you come to see any of us the last time you were in Moscow? Darya Alexandrovna, he exclaimed, blushing to the roots of his hair, I'm astonished that, with your kindness of heart, you can think of such a thing. How can you not pity me when you know? What do I know? You know that I offered myself and was rejected. And as he said this, all the tenderness that he had felt for Kitty a moment before changed in his heart into a sense of anger at the memory of this injury. How could you suppose that I knew? because everybody knows it. That is where you are mistaken. I suspected it, but I knew nothing positive. Ah, well, and so you know now. All that I know is that there was something which keenly tortured her, and that she has besought me never to mention it. If she had not told me, then she has not told anyone. Now, what have you against her? Tell me. I have told you all that there was. When was it? When I was at your house the last time. But do you know? I will tell you, said Darya Alexandrovna. I am sorry for Kitty, awfully sorry. You suffer only in your pride. Perhaps so, said Levin, but— She interrupted him. But she, poor little girl, I am awfully sorry for her. Now I understand all. Well, Darya Alexandrovna, Excuse me, 
said he, rising. Prashyati. Good-bye, Darya Alexandrovna. Dasvidanya. No, wait, she cried, holding him by the sleeve. Wait. Sit down. I beg of you. I beg of you. Let us not speak of this any more, said Levin, sitting down again, while a ray of that hope which he believed forever vanished flashed into his heart. If I did not like you, said Dolly, and the tears came into her eyes, if I did not know you as I do. The hope which he thought was dead awoke more and more, filled Levin's heart, and took masterful possession of it. Yes, I understand all now, said Dolly. You cannot understand this, you men, who are free in your choice. It is perfectly clear whom you love. But a young girl, with that feminine, maidenly reserve which is imposed on her, and seeing you men only at a distance, is constrained to wait, and she is, and must be, so agitated that she will not know what answer to give. Yes, if her heart does not speak. No, her heart speaks, but think for a moment. You men decide on some girl, you visit her home, you watch, observe, and you make up your minds whether you are in love or not, and then, when you have come to the conclusion that you love her, you offer yourselves. Well, now, we don't always do that. All the same, you don't propose until your love is fully ripe, or when you have made up your mind between two possible choices. But the young girl cannot make a choice. They pretend that she can choose, but she cannot. She can only answer yes or no. Well, the choice was between me and Vronsky, thought Levin and the resuscitated dead love in his soul seemed to die a second time, giving his heart an additional pang. Darya Alexandrovna, said he, thus one chooses a gown or any trifling merchandise, but not love. Besides, the choice has been made, and so much the better, and it cannot be done again. Oh, pride, pride, said Dolly, as if she would express her scorn for the degradation of his sentiments, compared with those which only women are able to comprehend. When you offered yourself to Kitty, she was in just that situation where she could not give an answer. She was in doubt. The choice was you or Vronsky. She saw him every day. You she had not seen for a long time. If she had been older, it would have been different. If I, for example, had been in her place, I should not have hesitated. He was always distasteful to me and so that is the end of it. Levin remembered Kitty's reply. No, this cannot be. Darya Alexandrovna, he said, dryly, I am touched by your confidence in me, but I think you are mistaken. But whether I am right or wrong, this pride which you so despise makes it impossible for me ever to think about Katerina Alexandrovna. You understand? Utterly impossible. I will say only one thing more. You must know that I am speaking to you of my sister, whom I love as my own children. I don't say that she loves you, but I only wish to say that her reply at that moment amounted to nothing at all. I don't know, said Levin, leaping suddenly to his feet. If you only realize the pain that you cause me, it is just the same as if you had lost a child, and they came to you and said, He would have been like this, like this, 
and he might have lived, and you would have had so much joy in him. But he is dead. 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 How absurd you are, said Darya Alexandrovna, with a melancholy smile at the sight of Levin's emotion. Well, I understand it all better and better, she continued pensively. Then you won't come to see us when Kitty is here. No, I will not. Of course I will not avoid Katerina Alexandrovna, but, when it is possible, I shall endeavour to spare her the affliction of my presence. You are very, very absurd, said Darya Alexandrovna, looking at him affectionately. Well, then, let it be as if we had not said a word about it. What do you want, Tanya? she said in French to her little girl who came running in. Where's my little shovel, Mamma? I speak French to you, and you must answer in French. The child tried to speak, but could not recall the French word for lapotka, shovel. Her mother whispered it to her, and then told her, still in French, where she should go to find it. This made Levin feel unpleasant. Everything now seemed changed in Darya Alexandrovna's household. Even the children were not nearly so attractive as before. And why does she speak French with the children? he thought. How false and unnatural! Even the children feel it. Teach them French, and spoil their sincerity, he said to himself, not knowing that Darya Alexandrovna had twenty times asked the same question, and yet, in spite of the harm that it did their simplicity, had come to the conclusion that this was the right way to teach them. But why are you in such a hurry? Sit a little while longer. Levin stayed to tea, but his gaiety was gone, and he felt uncomfortable. After tea he went out into the ante-room, to give orders about harnessing the horses, and when he came in he found Darya Alexandrovna in great disturbance, with flushed face and tears in her eyes. During his short absence an occurrence had ruthlessly destroyed all the pleasure and pride that she took in her children. Grisha and Tanya had quarrelled about a ball. Darya Alexandrovna, hearing their cries, ran to them, and found them in a frightful state. Tanya was pulling her brother's hair, and he, with face distorted with rage, was pounding his sister with all his might. When Darya Alexandrovna saw it, something seemed to snap in her heart. A black cloud, as it were, came down on her life. She saw that these children of hers, of whom she was so proud, were not only ordinary and ill-trained, but were even bad, and inclined to the most evil and tempestuous passions. This thought troubled her, so that she could not speak or think, or even explain her sorrow to Levin. Levin saw that she was unhappy, and he did his best to comfort her, saying that this was not so very terrible, after all, and that all children quarrelled. But in his heart he said, No, I will not bother myself to speak French with my children. I shall not have such children. There is no need of spoiling them, and making them unnatural, and they will be charming. No. My children shall not be like these. He took his leave and rode away, and she did not try to keep him longer. End of chapter 10 Part 3, Chapter 11 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Toward the end of July, Levin received a visit from the starosta of his sister's estate, situated about twenty versts from Prokoskoye. 
he brought the report about the progress of affairs and about the haymaking. The chief income from his sister's estate came from the meadows inundated in the spring. In former years the Muziks rented these hayfields at the rate of twenty rubles a desyatin. But when Levin undertook the management of this estate and examined the hay crops, he came to the conclusion that the rent was too low, and he raised it to the rate of twenty-five rubles a desyatin. The Muziks refused to pay this, and as Levin suspected, drove away other lessees. Then Levin himself went there, and arranged to have the meadows mowed partly by day-laborers, partly on shares. His Muziks were greatly discontented with this new plan, and did their best to thwart it, but it was attended with success, and even the very first year the yield from the meadows was nearly doubled. The opposition of the peasantry continued through the second and third summers, and the haymaking was conducted on the same conditions. But this year they had mowed the meadows on thirds, and now the starosta had come to announce that the work was done, and that he, fearing it was going to rain, had summoned the bookkeeper and made the division in his presence, and turned over the eighteen hayricks which were the proprietor's share. By the unsatisfactory answer to his question, how much hay had been secured from the largest meadow, by the starosta's haste in making the division without orders, by the man's whole manner, Levin was induced to think there was something crooked in the division of the hay, and he concluded that it would be wise to go and look into it. Levin reached the estate just at dinner-time, and leaving his horse at the house of his old friend, the husband of his brother's former nurse, he went to find the old man at the apiary, hoping to obtain from him some light on the question of the hay-crop. The loquacious, beautiful-looking old man, whose name was Parmenuich, was delighted to see Levin, showed him all about his husbandry, and told him all the particulars about his bees, and how they swarmed this year. But when Levin asked him about the hay, he gave vague and unsatisfactory answers. This still more confirmed Levin in his suspicions. He went to the meadows, and, on examination of the hayricks, found that they could not contain fifty loads each, as the musics said. So, in order to give the peasants a lesson, he had one of the carts, which they had used as a measure, to be brought, and ordered all the hay from one of the ricks to be carried into the shed. The hayrick was found to contain only thirty-two loads. Notwithstanding the starosta's protestations that the hay was measured right, and that it must have got pressed down in the cart, notwithstanding the fact that he called God to witness that it was all done in the most godly manner, Levin insisted on it that, as the division had been made without his orders, he would not accept the hayricks as equivalent to fifty loads each. After long parleys, it was decided that the musics should take eleven of these hayricks for their share, but that the masters should be measured over again. The colloquy about the division of the hayricks lasted until the mid-afternoon luncheon hour. When the last of the hay had been divided, Levin, confiding the care of the work to the bookkeeper, sat down on one of the hayricks which was marked by a laburnum stake, and enjoyed the spectacle of the meadows alive with the busy peasantry. Before him, at the bend of the river beyond the marsh, he saw the peasant women in a variegated line, and heard their ringing voices as they gossiped together while raking into long brown ramparts the hay scattered over the bright green aftermath. Behind the women came the men with pitchforks, turning the windrows into wide, high-swelling hayricks. Toward the left across the meadow, already cleared of the hay, came the creaking telegas, or peasant carts, and one by one, 
as the hayworks were lifted on the point of monstrous forks, disappeared, and their places were taken by the horse-wagons filled to overflowing with the fragrant hay, which almost hid the rumps of the horses. "'A splendid hay-weather. It will soon all be in,' said Parmenuitch, as he sat down near Levin. "'Tea, not hay. It scatters like seed for the ducks when they pitch it up.' Then, pointing to a hay-rick, which the men were demolishing, the old man went on. "'Since dinner, pitched up a good half of it. Is that the last?' he shouted to a young fellow, who, standing at the pole of a cart and shaking the ends of his hempen reins, was driving by. "'The last, Batyushka,' shouted back the young fellow, pulling in his horse. Then he looked down with a smile on a happy-looking, rosy-faced woman who was sitting on the hay in the telega and whipped up his steed again. "'Who is that? Your son?' asked Levin. "'My youngest,' said the elder, with an expression of pride. "'What a fine fellow!' "'Not bad.' "'Married yet?' "'Yes. Three years come next Filipovac.' "'So. And are there children?' "'How? Children? For a whole year I haven't heard anything about it, and it's a shame,' said the old man. "'Well, this is hay. Just tea,' he repeated, wishing to change the subject. Levin looked with interest at Venka Parmenov and his wife. They were loading on a hayrick nearby. Ivan Parmenov was standing on the wagon, arranging, storing, and pressing down the fragrant hay which the handsome goodwife handed up to him in great loads, first in armfuls, then with the fork. The young woman worked gaily, industriously, and skillfully. First she arranged it with her fork, then with elastic and agile motions she exerted all her strength upon it, and, stooping over, she lifted up the great armful, and, standing straight, with full bosom under the white chemise, gathered with a red girdle, she piled it high upon the load. Ivan, working as rapidly as he could, so as to relieve her of every moment of extra work, stretched out his arms wide, and caught up the load which she extended, and trampled it down into the wagon. Then, raking up what was left, the woman shook off the hay that had got into her neck, and, tying a red handkerchief around her broad white brow, she crept under the cart to fasten down the load. Vanka showed her how the rope should be tied, and at some remark that she made burst into a roar of laughter. In the expression on the faces of both of them could be seen strong young love recently awakened. End of chapter 11《パート3 Chapter 12 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by Marianne Spiegel The load was complete and Ivan jumping down took his gentle fat horse by the bridle and joined the file of Telyigis going into the village The young woman threw her rake on top of the load and swinging her arms joined the other women who had collected in a group to sing these women, with rakes on their shoulders and dressed in bright colors, suddenly burst forth into song with loud, happy voices as they followed the carts. One wild, untrained voice would sing a verse of piesna, or folk-song, and when she had reached the refrain, fifty other young, fresh, and powerful voices would take it up simultaneously and repeat it to the end. The peasant women, singing their folk-song, came toward Levin, and it seemed to him that a cloud, frighted with the thunder of gaiety, was moving down upon him. The thunder-cloud drew near, 
it took possession of him, and the haycock on which he was reclining, and the other haycocks, and the carts, and the whole meadow, and the far-off field, moved and swayed to the rhythm of this wild song, with its accompaniment of whistles and shrill cries and clapping of hands. The wholesome gaiety filled him with envy. He would have liked to take part in this expression of joyous life, but nothing of the sort could he do, and he was obliged to lie still and look and listen. When the throng with their song had passed out of sight and hearing, an oppressive feeling of melancholy came over him at the thought of his loneliness, of his physical indolence, of the hostility which existed between him and this alien world. Some of these very musics, even those who had quarrelled with him about the hay, or those whom he had injured, or those who had intended to cheat him, saluted him gaily as they passed, and evidently did not, and could not, bear him any malice, or feel any remorse, or even remembrance that they had tried to defraud him. All was swallowed up and forgotten in this sea of joyous, universal labor. God gave the day, God gave the strength, and the day and the strength consecrated the labor, and yielded their own reward. For whom was the work? What would be the fruits of the work? These were secondary, unimportant considerations. Levin had often looked with interest at this life, had often experienced a feeling of envy of the people that lived this life, but to-day, for the first time, especially under the impression of what he had seen in the bearing of Ivan Parmenov toward his young wife, he had clearly realized that it depended upon himself whether he would exchange the burdensome, idle, artificial, selfish existence which he led for the laborious, simple, pure, and delightful life of the peasantry. The elder who had been sitting with him had already gone home. The people were scattered. The neighboring villagers had already reached their houses. But those who lived at a distance were preparing to spend the night in the meadow, and were getting ready for supper. Levin, without being noticed by the people, still reclined on the haycock, looking, listening, and thinking. The peasantry gathered in the meadow scarcely slept through the short summer night. At first gay gossip and laughter were heard while they were eating, then followed songs and jests again. No trace of all the long, laborious day was left upon them except its happiness. Just before the dawn there was silence everywhere. Nothing could be heard but the nocturnal sounds of the frogs ceaselessly croaking in the marsh, and the horses whinnying as they waited in the mist that rose before the dawn. Coming to himself, Levin got up from the haycock, and, looking at the stars, saw that the night had gone. Well, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? he asked himself, trying to give a shape to the thoughts and feelings that had occurred to him during this short night. All that he had thought and felt had taken three separate directions. First, it seemed to him that he must renounce his former mode of life, which was useful neither to himself nor to anyone else. This renunciation seemed to him very attractive, and was easy and simple. The second direction that his thoughts and feelings took referred especially to the new life which he longed to lead. He clearly realized the simplicity, purity, and regularity of this new life, and was convinced that he should find in it that satisfaction, that calmness and mental freedom, which he now felt the lack of so painfully. 
the third line of thought brought him to the question how he should effect the transition from the old life to the new, and in this regard nothing clear presented itself to his mind. I must have a wife. I must engage in work, and have the absolute necessity of work. Shall I abandon Prokofskoya? By land? Join the commune? Marry a peasant woman? How can I do all this? He again asked himself, and no answer came. However, he went on, in his self-communings, I have not slept all night, and my ideas are not very clear. I shall reduce them to order by and by. One thing is certain. This night has settled my fate. All my former dreams of family existence were rubbish. But this, all this is vastly simpler and better. How lovely, he thought, as he gazed at the delicate white curly clouds, colored like mother-of-pearl which floated in the sky above him. How charming everything has been this lovely night! And when did that shell have time to form? I have been looking this long time at the sky, and yet nothing was to be seen, only two white streaks. Yes, thus, without my knowing it, my views about life have been changed. He left the meadow and walked along the highway that led to the village. A cool breeze began to blow, and it became grey and melancholy. The sombre moment was at hand which generally precedes the dawn, the perfect triumph of light over the darkness. Shivering with the chill, Levin walked fast, looking at the ground. "'What is that? Who is coming?' he asked himself, hearing the sound of bells. He raised his head. About forty paces from him he saw, coming toward him on the highway, on the grassy edge where he himself was walking, a travelling carriage drawn by four horses— the post-horses, to avoid the ruts, pressed close against the pole, but the skilful postillion, seated on one side of the box, kept the pole directly over the rut, so that the wheels kept only on the smooth surface of the road. Levin was so interested in this that, without thinking who might be coming, he only glanced heedlessly at the carriage. In one corner of the carriage an elderly lady was asleep, and by the window sat a young girl, evidently only just awake, holding with both hands the ribbons of her white bonnet. Serene and thoughtful, filled with a lofty, complex life, which Levin could not understand, she was gazing beyond him at the glow of the morning sky. At the very instant that this vision flashed by him he caught a glimpse of her frank eyes. She recognized him, and a gleam of joy, mingled with wonder, lightened up her face. He could not be mistaken. Only she in all the world had such eyes. In all the world there was only one being who could concentrate for him all the light and meaning of life. It was she. It was Kitty. He judged that she was on her way from the railway station to Yergoshevo. And all the thoughts that had occupied Levin through his sleepless night, all the resolutions that he had made, vanished in a twinkling. Horror seized him as he remembered his dream of marrying a Kretzianka, a peasant wife. In that carriage which flashed by him on the other side of the road, and disappeared, was the only possible answer to his life's enigma which had tormented and puzzled him so long. She was now out of sight. The rumble of the wheels had ceased, and scarcely could he hear the bells. The barking of the dogs told him that the carriage was passing through the village, and now there remained only the empty fields, the distant village, 
and himself an alien and a stranger to everything, walking solitary on the deserted highway. He looked at the sky, hoping to find there still the seashell cloud which he had admired, and which personified for him the movement of his thoughts and feelings during the night. But in the sky there was nothing that resembled the shell. There, at immeasurable heights, that mysterious change had already taken place. There was no trace of the shell, but in its place there extended over a good half of the heavens a carpet of cirrus clouds sweeping on and sweeping on. The sky was growing blue and luminous, and with the same tenderness, and also with the same unsatisfactoriness, it answered his questioning look. No, he said to himself, however good this simple and laborious life may be, I cannot bring myself to it. I love her. End of chapter 12Part three, chapter thirteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. No one except Alexey Alexandrovitch's most intimate friends suspected that this apparently cold and sober-minded man had one weakness absolutely contradictory to the general consistency of his character. He could not look with indifference at a child or a woman who was weeping. The sight of tears caused him to lose his self-control, and destroyed for him his reasoning faculties. The manager of his chancellery and his secretary understood this, and warned women who came to present petitions not to allow their feelings to overcome them unless they wanted to injure their prospects. He will fly into a passion and will not listen to you, they said and it was a fact that the trouble which the sight of weeping caused Alexey Alexandrovitch was expressed by hasty irritation. "'I cannot, I cannot do anything for you. Please leave me,' he would exclaim, as a general thing, in such cases. When, on their way back from the races, Anna confessed her relations with Vronsky, and, immediately afterwards covering her face with her hands, burst into tears, Alexey Alexandrovitch, in spite of his anger against his wife, was conscious, at the same time, of that deep, soul-felt emotion welling up which the sight of tears always caused him. Knowing this, and knowing that any expression of it would be incompatible with the situation, he endeavoured to restrain any sign of agitation, and therefore he neither moved nor looked at her. Hence arose that strange appearance of death-like rigidity in his face which so impressed Anna. When they reached home, he helped her from the carriage, and having made a great effort, he left her with ordinary politeness, saying only those words which would not oblige him to follow any course. He simply said that on the morrow he would let her know his decision. His wife's words, confirming his worst suspicions, caused a keen pain in his heart, and this pain was made still keener by the strange sensation of physical pity for her, caused by the sight of her tears. Yet, as he sat alone in his carriage, Alexey Alexandrovitch, to his surprise and pleasure, was conscious of an absolute freedom, not only from that sense of pity, but also from the doubts and the pangs of jealousy which had of late been tormenting him. He experienced the feelings of a man who has been suffering for a long time from a toothache. After one terrible moment of agony, and the sensation of something enormous, greater than the head itself, which is wrenched out of the jaw, the patient, 
hardly able to believe in his good fortune, suddenly discovers that the pain that has been poisoning his life so long has ceased, and that he can live and think and interest himself in something besides his aching tooth. This feeling Alexey Alexandrovitch now experienced. The pain had been strange and terrible, but now it was over. He felt that he could live again, and think of something besides his wife. Without honor, without heart, without religion, an abandoned woman. I have always known this, and I have always seen it, though out of pity for her I tried to shut my eyes to it, he said to himself. And it really seemed to him that he had always seen this. He recalled many details of their past lives, and things which had once seemed innocent in his eyes, now clearly came up as proofs that she had always been corrupt. I made a mistake when I joined my life to hers, but my mistake was not my fault, and therefore I ought not to be unhappy. I am not the guilty one, said he, but she is. But I have nothing more to do with her. She does not exist for me. All that would befall her, as well as his son, toward whom also his feelings underwent a similar change, now ceased to occupy him. The only thing that did occupy him now was the question how to make his escape from this wretched crisis in a manner at once wise, correct, and honorable for himself, and having cleared himself from the mud with which she had spattered him by her fall, how he would henceforth pursue his own path of honorable, active, and useful life. Must I make myself wretched, because a wretched woman has committed a crime? All I want is to find the best way out from this situation to which she has brought me, and I will find it, he added, getting more and more indignant. I am not the first, nor the last. And not speaking of the historical examples, beginning with La Belle Helene of Menelaus, which had recently been brought to all their memories by Offenbach's opera, Alexey Alexandrovitch went over in his mind a whole series of contemporary episodes, where husbands of the highest position had been obliged to mourn the faithlessness of their wives. Daryalov, Poltavsky, Prince Karabanov, Count Paskudin, Drom, yes, even Drom, honorable, industrious man as he is, Semenov, Shagin, Sagonin. Admit that they cast unjust ridicule on these men, as for me, I never saw anything except their misfortune, and I always pitied them, said Alexey Alexandrovitch to himself, although this was not so, and he had never sympathized with misfortune of this sort, and had only plumed himself the more, as he had heard of wives deceiving their husbands. This is a misfortune which is likely to strike any one, and now it has struck me. The only thing is to know how to find the best way of settling the difficulty." and he began to recall the different ways in which these men, finding themselves in such a position as he was, had behaved. Daryalov fought a duel. Dueling had been a subject of consideration to Alexey Alexandrovitch when he was a young man, and for the reason that physically he was a timid man, and he knew it. He could not think without a shudder of having a pistol leveled at him, and never in his life had he practiced with firearms. This instinctive horror had, in early life, caused him often to think about dueling, and to imagine himself to expose his life to this danger. Afterward, when he had attained success and a high social position, he had got out of the way of such thoughts, but his habit of mind now reasserted itself, and his timidity, owing to his cowardice, was so great 
that Alexey Alexandrovitch long deliberated about the matter, turning it over on all sides, and questioning the expediency of a duel, although he knew perfectly well that in any case he would never fight. Undoubtedly the state of our society is still so savage, he said, though it is not so in England, that very many, and in these many, to whom such a solution was satisfactory, there were some for whose opinions Alexey Alexandrovitch had the very highest regard. Looking at the duel from its good side, to what result does it lead? Let us suppose that I send a challenge. And Alexey Alexandrovitch went on to draw a vivid picture of the night that he would spend after the challenge, and he imagined the pistol aimed at him and shuddered, and realized that he could never do such a thing. Let us suppose that I challenge him to a duel. Let us suppose that I learn how to shoot, he forced himself to think. That I am standing, that I pull the trigger, he said to himself, shutting his eyes, and it happens that I kill him. He shook his head, to drive away these absurd notions. What sense would there be in causing a man's death, in order to settle my relations to a sinful woman and her son? Even then I should have to decide what I ought to do with her. But suppose, and this is vastly more likely to happen, that I am the one killed or wounded. I, an innocent man, the victim, killed or wounded, still more absurd. But, moreover, would not the challenge to a duel on my part be a dishonorable action, certain as I am beforehand that my friends would never allow me to fight a duel, would never permit the life of a government official, who is so indispensable to Russia, to be exposed to danger? What would happen? This would happen, that I, knowing in advance that the matter would never result in any danger, should seem to people to be anxious to win notoriety by a challenge. It would be dishonorable. It would be false. It would be an act of deception to others and to myself. A duel is not to be thought of, and no one expects it of me. My sole aim should be to preserve my reputation, and not to suffer any unnecessary interruption of my activity. The service of the state, always important in the eyes of Alexey Alexandrovitch, now appeared to him of extraordinary importance. Having decided against the duel, Alexey Alexandrovitch began to discuss the question of divorce, a second expedient which had been employed by several of the men whom he had in mind. Calling to mind all the well-known examples of divorce, and there had been many in the very highest circles of society, as he well knew. He could not name a single case where the aim of the divorce had been such as he proposed. The husband in each case had sold or given up the faithless wife, and the guilty party, who had no right to a second marriage, had entered into relations, imagined to be sanctioned, with a new husband. Alexey Alexandrovitch saw that, in his case at least, legal divorce, whereby the faithless wife would be repudiated, was impossible. He saw that the complicated conditions of his life precluded the possibility of those coarse proofs which the law demanded for the establishment of a wife's guilt. He saw that the distinguished refinement of his life precluded the public use of such proofs, even if they existed, and that the public use of these proofs would cause him to fall lower in public opinion than the guilty wife. Divorce could only end in a scandalous lawsuit, which would be a godsend to his enemies and to lovers of gossip, and would disgrace him from his high position in society. His principal object, 
the determination of his position with the least possible confusion would not be attained by a divorce. Divorce, moreover, broke off all intercourse between wife and husband, and united her to her paramour. Now in Alexey Alexandrovitch's heart, in spite of the scornful indifference which he affected to feel toward his wife, there still remained one very keen sentiment, and that was his unwillingness for her, unhindered, to unite her lot with Vronsky, so that her fault would turn out to her advantage. This possible contingency was so painful to Alexey Alexandrovitch that, merely at the thought of it, he bellowed with mental pain, and he got up from his seat, changed his place in the carriage, and for a long time, darkly scowling, wrapped his woolly plaid about his thin and chilly legs. Besides formal divorce, he said to himself, as, growing a little calmer, he continued his deliberations. It would be possible to act as Karabanov, Baskudin, and that gentle drum have done. That is to say, I could separate from my wife. But this measure had almost the same disadvantages as the other. It was practically to throw his wife into Vronsky's arms. No, it is impossible, impossible, he said aloud, again trying to wrap himself up in his plaid. I cannot be unhappy, but neither she nor he ought to be happy. The feeling of jealousy which had tormented him while he was still ignorant had passed away when by his wife's words the aching tooth had been pulled, but this feeling was replaced by a different one, the desire not only that she should not triumph, but that she should receive the reward for her sin. He did not express it, but in the depths of his soul he desired that she should be punished for the way in which she had destroyed his peace and honor. After once more passing in review the conditions of the duel, the divorce, and the separation, and once more rejecting them, Alexey Alexandrovitch came to the conclusion that there was only one way to escape from his trouble, and that was to keep his wife under his protection, shielding his misfortune from the eyes of the world, employing all possible means to break off the illicit relationship, and, above all, though he did not avow it to himself, punishing his wife's fault. I must let her know that, in the cruel situation into which she has brought our family, I have come to the conclusion that the status quo is the only way that seems advisable for both sides, and that I will agree to preserve it under the strenuous condition that she, on her part, fulfill my will, and break off all relations with her paramour. For the bolstering of this resolution, when once he had finally adopted it, Alexey Alexandrovitch brought up one convincing argument— only by acting in this manner do I conform absolutely with the law of religion, said he to himself. Only by this reasoning do I refuse to send away the adulterous woman, and I give her the chance of amending her ways, and likewise, painful as it will be to me, I consecrate a part of my powers to her regeneration and salvation. Though Alexey Alexandrovitch knew that he could have no moral influence over his wife, and that the attempts which he should make to reform his wife would have no other outcome than falsehood. Although during the trying moments that he had been living, he had not for an instant thought of finding his guidance in religion, yet now, when he felt that his determination was in accordance with religion, this religious sanction of his resolution gave him full comfort and a certain share of satisfaction. He was consoled with the thought that in such a trying period of his life, 
no one would have the right to say that he had not acted in conformity to the religion whose banner he bore aloft in the midst of coolness and indifference. As he went over in his mind the remotest contingencies, Alexey Alexandrovitch even saw no reason why his relations with his wife should not remain pretty much as they had always been. Of course, it would be impossible for him to feel great confidence in her, but he saw no reason why he should ruin his whole life and suffer personally, because she was a bad and faithless wife. Yes, time will pass, he said to himself, time which solves all problems, and our relations will be brought into the old order, so that I shall not feel the disorder that has broken up the current of my life. She must be unhappy, but I am not to blame, and so I do not see why I must be unhappy too. End of chapter 13part three chapter fourteen of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel alexey alexandrovitch during his drive back to petersburg not only fully decided on the line of conduct which he should adopt but even composed in his head a letter to be sent to his wife when he reached his switzer's room he glanced at the official papers and letters which had been brought from the ministry, and ordered them to be brought into the library. "'Shut the door, and let no one in,' he said in reply to a question of the Swiss, emphasizing the last words. "'Ni prinamant. Let no one in,' with some satisfaction, which was an evident sign that he was in a better state of mind. Alexey Alexandrovitch walked up and down the library once or twice, and then, Coming to his huge writing-table, on which his lackey, before going out, had placed six lighted candles, he cracked his fingers and sat down, and began to examine his writing materials. Then, leaning his elbow on the table, he bent his head to one side, and after a moment of reflection, he began to write without the slightest hesitancy. He wrote in French, without addressing her by name, employing the pronoun vous, which has less coldness than the corresponding Russian word view has. He wrote, At our recent interview I expressed the intention of communicating to you my resolution concerning the subject of our conversation. Having carefully taken everything into consideration, I am writing now with the view of fulfilling my promise. This is my decision. Whatever your conduct may have been, I do not acknowledge that you have the right to break the bonds which a power supreme has consecrated. The family cannot be broken up through a caprice, an arbitrary act, even through the crime of one of the parties, and our lives must remain unchanged. This must be so for my sake, for your sake, for the sake of our son. I am fully persuaded that you have been repentant, that you still feel repentant for the deed that obliges me to write to you, that you will cooperate with me in destroying root and branch the cause of our estrangement and in forgetting the past. In case this be not so, you yourself must understand what awaits you and your son. In regard to all this, I hope to have a more specific conversation at a personal interview. As the summer season is nearly over, I beg of you to come back to Petersburg as soon as possible, and certainly not later than Tuesday. All the necessary measures for your return hither will be taken. 
I beg you to take notice that I attach a very peculiar importance to your attention to my request. A. Corinnin. P.S. I enclose in this letter money, which you may need at this particular time. He re-read his letter, and was satisfied with it, especially with the fact that he had thought of sending the money. There was not an angry word, not a reproach, neither was there any condescension in it, the essential thing was the golden bridge for their reconciliation. He folded his letter, smoothed it with a huge paper-cutter of massive ivory, enclosed it in an envelope together with the money, and rang the bell, feeling that sense of satisfaction which the use of his well-ordered, perfect epistolary arrangements always gave him. "'Give this letter to the courier for delivery to Anna Arkadyevna at the dacha tomorrow,' he said, and arose." I will obey your excellency. Will you have tea here in the library? Alexey Alexandrovitch ordered tea brought to him in the library, and then, still playing with the paper-cutter, he went toward his armchair, near which were a shaded lamp and a French work on cuneiform inscriptions which he had begun. Above the chair, in an oval gilt frame, hung a portrait of Anna, the excellent work of a distinguished painter. Alexey Alexandrovitch looked at it. The eyes, as inscrutable as they had been on the evening of their attempted explanation, looked down at him ironically and insolently. Everything about this remarkable portrait seemed to Alexey Alexandrovitch insupportably insolent and provoking, from the black lace on her head and her dark hair, to the white, beautiful hand and the ring finger covered with jeweled rings. After gazing at this portrait for a moment, Alexey Alexandrovitch shuddered, his lips trembled, and with a burr, he turned away. Hastily sitting down in his armchair, he opened his book. He tried to read, but he could not regain the keen interest which he had felt before in the cuneiform inscriptions. His eyes looked at the book, but his thoughts were elsewhere. He was thinking, not of his wife, but of a complication which had recently arisen in important matters connected with his official activity, and which at present formed the chief interest of his service. He felt that he was more deeply than ever plunged into this complicated affair, and that he could without self-conceit claim that the idea which had originated in his brain was bound to disentangle the whole difficulty, to confirm him in his official career, to put down his enemies, and thus enable him to do a signal service to the state. As soon as his servant had brought him the tea, and left the room, Alexey Alexandrovitch got up and went to his writing-table, pushing to the centre of it a portfolio which contained papers relating to this affair. He seized a pencil from the stand, and, with a faintly sarcastic smile of self-satisfaction, buried himself in the perusal of the documents relative to the complicated business under consideration. The complication was as follows. The distinguishing trait of Alexey Alexandrovitch as a government official, the one characteristic trait peculiar to him alone, though it must mark every progressive Shinovnik, the trait which had contributed to his success no less than his eager ambition, his moderation, his uprightness, and his self-confidence, was his detestation of red tape, and his sincere desire to avoid, as far as he could, unnecessary writing, 
and to go straight on in accomplishing needful business with all expedition and economy. It happened that, in the famous commission of the 14th of June, a project was mooted for the irrigation of the fields in the government of Zarai, which formed a part of Alexey Alexandrovitch's jurisdiction, and this project offered a striking example of the few results obtained by official correspondence and expenditure. Alexey Alexandrovitch knew that it was a worthy object. The matter of the irrigation of the fields in the government of Zarai had come to him by inheritance from his predecessor in the ministry, and, in fact, had already cost much money and brought no results. When Alexey Alexandrovitch entered the ministry, he had perceived this, and had wanted immediately to put his hand to this work, but at first he did not feel himself strong enough, and perceived that it touched too many interests, and was imprudent, and afterward, having become involved in other matters, he entirely forgot about it. The fertilization of those arrived fields, like all things, went in its own way by force of inertia. Many people got their living through it, and one family in particular, a very agreeable and musical family, all of the daughters of which played on stringed instruments. Alexey Alexandrovitch knew this family, and had been nuptial godfather when one of the elder daughters was married. The opposition to this affair, raised by his enemies in another branch of the ministry, was unjust, in the opinion of Alexey Alexandrovitch, because in every ministry there are similar cases which by a well-known rule of official etiquette no one ever bothers himself about. But now, since they had thrown down the gauntlet, he had boldly accepted the challenge and asked for the appointment of a special commission for examining and verifying the labors of the commissioners on the fertilization of the Zarai fields. And this did not prevent him from also keeping these gentlemen busy in other ways. He had also demanded a special commission for investigating the status and organization of the foreign populations. This last question had likewise been raised by the commission of June 14th, and was energetically supported by Alexey Alexandrovitch, on the ground that no delay should be allowed in relieving the deplorable situation of these alien tribes. In committee this matter gave rise to the most lively discussions among the ministries. The ministry hostile to Alexey Alexandrovitch proved that the position of the foreign populations was perfectly flourishing, that to meddle with them would be to injure their well-being, and that, if any fault could be found in regard to the matter, it was due to the neglect of Alexey Alexandrovitch and his ministry in not carrying out the measures prescribed by law. Now Alexey Alexandrovitch had made up his mind to demand, first, the appointment of a new committee, whose duty should be to study on the spot the condition of the foreign populations, secondly, in case their condition should be found such as the official data in the hands of the committee represented, that a new scientific commission should be sent to study into the causes of this sad state of things, with the aim of settling it from the a. political, b. administrative, c. economical, d. ethnographical, e. physical, and f. religious point of view. Thirdly, that the hostile ministry should be required to furnish the particulars in regard to the measures taken during the last ten years to relieve the wretched situation in which these tribes were placed. And fourthly, and finally, that this ministry should explain the fact that they had acted in absolute contradiction to the fundamental and organic law, volume T, page 18, with reference to article 36, as was proved by an act of the committee under numbers 
17015 and 18308 of the 17th of December, 1863, and the 19th of June, 1864. A flush of animation covered Alexey Alexandrovitch's face as he rapidly wrote down for his own use a digest of these thoughts. After he had covered a sheet of paper, he rang a bell, and sent a messenger to the director of the chancellery, asking for a few data which were missing. Then he got up, and began to walk up and down the room, looking again at the portrait with a frown and a scornful smile. Then he resumed his book about the cuneiform inscriptions, and found that his interest of the evening before had come back to him. He went to bed about eleven o'clock, and as he lay, still awake, he passed in review the affair with his wife, and it no longer appeared to him in the same gloomy aspect. End of chapter 14 Part 3, Chapter 15 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Though Anna had obstinately and angrily contradicted Vronsky when he told her that her position was impossible, yet in the bottom of her heart she felt that it was false and dishonorable, and she longed with all her soul to escape from it. When, in a moment of agitation, she avowed all to her husband as they were returning from the races, notwithstanding the pain which it cost her, she felt glad. After Alexey Alexandrovitch left her, she kept repeating to herself that she was glad, and now all was explained, and that henceforth there would be at least no more need of falsehood and deception. It seemed to her indubitable that now her possession would be henceforth determined. It might be bad, but it would be definite, and there would be an end to lying and equivocation. The pain which her words had cost her husband, and herself, would have its compensation, she thought, in the fact that now all would be definite. That very evening Vronsky came to see her, but she did not tell him what had taken place between her husband and herself, although it was needful to tell him, in order that the affair might be definitely settled. The next morning, when she awoke, her first memory was of the words that she had spoken to her husband, and they seemed to her so odious that she could not imagine now how she could have brought herself to say such strange, brutal words, and she could not conceive what the result of them would be. But the words were irrevocable, and Alexey Alexandrovitch had departed without replying. I have seen Vronsky since, and I did not tell him. Even at the moment he went away, I wanted to hold him back and tell him, but I postponed it because I felt how strange it was that I did not tell him at the first moment. Why did I have the desire, and yet not speak? And, in reply to this question, the hot flush of shame kindled in her face. She realized that it was shame that kept her from speaking. Her position, which the evening before had seemed to her so clear, suddenly presented itself as very far from clear, as inextricable. She began to fear the dishonor about which she had not thought before. When she considered what her husband might do to her, the most terrible ideas came to her mind. It occurred to her that at any instant the steward might appear to drive her out of house and home, and that her shame might be proclaimed to all the world. She asked herself where she could go if they drove her from home, and she found no answer. When she thought of Vronsky, she imagined that he did not love her, and that he was already beginning to tire of her, 
and that she could not impose herself on him, and she felt angry with him. It seemed to her that the words which she spoke to her husband, and which she incessantly repeated to herself, were spoken so that everybody could hear them, and had heard them. She could not bring herself to look into the faces of those with whom she lived. She could not bring herself to ring for her maid, and still less to go down and meet her son and his governess. The maid came, and stood long at the door, listening. Finally she decided to go to her without a summons. Anna looked at her questioningly, and in her terror she blushed. The maid apologized for coming, saying that she thought she heard the bell. She brought a gown and a note. The note was from Betsy. Betsy reminded her that Lisa Merkolava and the Baroness Stoltz, with their adorers, Kaluzhki and the old man Stremov, were coming to her house that morning for a game of croquet. "'Come and look on, please, as a study of manners. I shall expect you,' was the conclusion of the note. Anna read the letter, and sighed profoundly. "'Nothing. Nothing. I need nothing,' she said to Anushka, who was arranging the brushes and toilet articles on her dressing-table. "'Go away. I will dress myself immediately, and come down. I need nothing.' Anushka went out, yet Anna did not begin to dress, but sat in the same attitude, with bent head and folded hands, and occasionally she would shiver, and begin to make some gesture, to say something, and then fall back into listlessness again. She kept saying, Bosmoi, Bosmoi, but the words had no meaning in her mind. The thought of seeking a refuge from her situation in religion, although she never doubted the faith in which she had been trained, seemed to her as strange as to go and ask help of Alexey Alexandrovitch himself. She knew beforehand that the refuge offered by religion was possible only by the absolute renunciation of all that constituted for her the meaning of life. She suffered, and was frightened besides, by a sensation that was new to her experience hitherto, and which seemed to take possession of her inmost soul. She seemed to feel double, just as sometimes eyes, when weary, see double. She knew not what she feared, what she desired. She knew not whether she feared and desired what had passed, or what was to come, and what she desired she did not know. "'Oh, what am I doing?' she cried, suddenly feeling a pain in both temples, and she discovered that she had taken her hair into her two hands and was pulling it. She got up and began to walk the floor. "'The coffee is served.' and Mamselle and Zeroza are waiting, said Anushka, coming in again, and finding her mistress in the same condition as before. Zeroza, what is Zeroza doing? suddenly asked Anna, remembering for the first time that morning the existence of her son. He has been naughty, I think, said Anushka, with a smile. How naughty! You had some peaches in the corner cupboard. He took one, and ate it on the sly, it seems." The thought of her son suddenly called Anna from the impassive state in which she had been sunk. She remembered the partly sincere, though somewhat exaggerated, role of devoted mother, which she had taken on herself for a number of years, and she felt with joy that in this relationship she had a standpoint independent of her relation to her husband and Vronsky. This standpoint was her son. In whatever situation she might be placed, she could not give him up. Her husband might drive her from him, and put her to shame, 
Vronsky might turn his back on her and resume his former independent life, and here again she thought of him with a feeling of anger and reproach. But she could not leave her son. She had an aim in life, and she must act, act so as to safeguard this relation toward her son, so that they could not take him from her. She must act as speedily as possible before they took him from her. She must take her son and go off. That was the one thing which she now had to do. She must calm herself and get away from this tormenting situation. The very thought of an action having reference to her son, and of going away with him anywhere, anywhere, already gave her consolation. She dressed in haste, went downstairs, and with firm steps entered the drawing-room, where, as usual, she found lunch ready, and Sir Rosa and the governess waiting for her. Sir Rosa, all in white, was standing near a table under the mirror, with the expression of concentrated attention which she knew so well, and in which he resembled his father. Bending over, he was busy with some flowers which he had brought in. The governess had a very stern expression. Sir Rosa, as soon as he saw his mother, uttered a sharp cry, which was a frequent custom of his. "'Ah, mamma! Then he stopped, undecided whether to throw down the flowers and run to his mother and let the flowers go, or to finish his bouquet and take it to her. The governess bowed, and began a long and circumstantial account of the naughtiness that Sir Rosa had committed. But Anna did not hear her. She was thinking whether she should take her with them. No, I will not, she decided. I will go alone with my son. Yes, that was very naughty, said Anna, and taking the boy by the shoulder, she looked with a gentle, not angry, face at the confused but happy boy, and kissed him. "'Leave him with me,' she said to the wondering governess, and not letting go his arm, she sat down at the table where the coffee was waiting. "'Mama, I—I—didn't—' stammered Sir Rosa, trying to judge by his mother's expression what fate was in store for him for having pilfered the peach. "'Sir Rosa,' she said, as soon as the governess had left the room, "'that was naughty. You will not do it again, will you? Do you love me?' She felt that the tears were standing in her eyes. "'Why can I not love him?' she asked herself, studying the boy's frightened and yet happy face. "'And can he join with his father to punish me? Will he not have pity on me?' The tears began to course down her face, and, in order to hide them, she rose up quickly, and hastened, almost ran, to the terrace. Clear, cool weather had succeeded the stormy rains of the last few days. In spite of the warm sun which shone on the thick foliage of the trees, it was cool in the shade. She shivered both from the coolness and from the sentiment of fear which in the cool air seized her with new force. "'Go, and find Marietta,' she said to Sarosa, who had followed her, and then she began to walk up and down on the straw carpet which covered the terrace. "'Will they not forgive me?' she asked herself. Will they not understand that all this could not possibly have been otherwise? As she stopped and looked at the top of the aspens waving in the wind, with their freshly washed leaves glittering brightly in the cool sunbeams, it seemed to her that they would not forgive her, that all, that everything, would be as pitiless toward her as that sky and that foliage. And again she felt that mysterious sense in her inmost soul that she was in a dual state, I must not, must not think, she said to herself. 
I must have courage. Where shall I go? When? Whom shall I take? Yes, to Moscow by the evening train, with Anushka and Sarosa, and only the most necessary things. But first I must write to them both. She hurried back into the house to her boudoir, sat down at the table, and wrote to her husband. After what has passed, I can no longer remain in your house. I am going away, and I shall take my son. I do not know the laws, and so I do not know with which of his parents the child should remain. But I take him with me, because I cannot live without him. Be magnanimous. Let me have him. Up to this point she wrote rapidly and naturally. But this appeal to a magnanimity which she had never seen in him, and the need of ending her letter with something affecting, brought her to a halt. I cannot speak of my fault and my repentance, because— And again she stopped, unable to find the right words to express her thoughts. No, she said, nothing more is necessary, and tearing up this letter she began another, from which she left out any appeal to his generosity, and sealed it. She had to write a second letter, to Vronsky. I have confessed to my husband, she began, and she sat long wrapped in thought, without being able to write more. That was so coarse, so unfeminine. And then, what can I write to him? she asked herself. Again the crimson of shame mantled her face as she remembered how calm he was, and she felt so vexed with him that she tore the sheet of paper with its one phrase into bits. I cannot write, she said to herself, and closing her desk she went upstairs, told the governess and the domestics that she was going to Moscow that evening, and instantly began to make her preparations. End of chapter 15part 3 chapter 16 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel in all the rooms of the villa the men servants the gardeners the lackeys were hurrying about laden with various things cupboards and commodes were cleared of their contents twice they had gone to the shop for packing cord on the floor lay piles of newspapers Two trunks, travelling-bags, and a bundle of plaids had been carried into the anteroom. A carriage and two cabs were waiting at the front door. Anna, who in the haste of packing had somewhat forgotten her inward anguish, was standing by her table in her boudoir and packing her bag, when Anushka called her attention to the rumble of a carriage approaching the house. Anna looked out of the window and saw on the steps Alexey Alexandrovitch's messenger-boy ringing the front bell. "'Go and see what it is,' said she, and then sat down in her chair, and, folding her hands on her knees, waited with calm resignation. A lackey brought her a fat packet directed in Alexey Alexandrovitch's handwriting. "'The messenger was ordered to wait an answer,' said he. "'Very well,' she replied, and as soon as he left the room she opened the packet with trembling fingers. A roll of fresh, new banknotes in a wrapper fell out first. She unfolded the letter and began to read it at the end. "'All the necessary measures for your return hither will be taken. I attach my very particular importance to your attention to my request,' she read. She ran it through hastily backwards a second time, read it all through, and then she read it again from beginning to end. When she had finished it, she felt chilled, 
and had the consciousness that some terrible and unexpected misfortune was crushing her. That very morning she had regretted her confession to her husband, and desired nothing so much as that she had not spoken those words, and this letter treated her words as if they had not been spoken, gave her what she desired, and yet it seemed to her more cruel than anything that she could have imagined. Right. He is right, she murmured. Of course, he is always right. He is a Christian. He is magnanimous. Yes, the low, vile man. No one understands. No one knows him but me, and I cannot explain it. People say, he is a religious, moral, honorable, intellectual man, but they have not seen what I have seen. They do not know how for eight years he has crushed my life, crushed everything that was vital in me, how he has never once thought of me as a living woman who needed love. They do not know how at every step he has insulted me, and yet remained self-satisfied. Have I not striven, striven with all my powers, to find a justification of my life? Have I not done my best to love him, to love his son, when I could not love my husband? But the time came when I found I could no longer deceive myself, that I am a living being, that I am not to blame, that God has made me so, and that I must love and live. And now what? He might kill me, he might kill him, and I could endure it, I could forgive it. But no, he... Why should I have not foreseen what he would do? He does exactly in accordance with his despicable character. He stands on his rights. But I, poor unfortunate, am sunk lower and more irreclaimably than ever toward ruin. You may surmise what awaits you and your son, she repeated to herself, remembering a sentence in his letter. It is a threat that he means to rob me of my son, and doubtless their wretched laws allow it. But do I not see why he said that? He has no belief in my love for my son, or else he is deriding, as he always does, in his sarcastic manner, is deriding this feeling of mine, for he knows that I will not abandon my son. I cannot abandon him, that without my son life would be insupportable, even with him whom I love, and that to abandon my son, and leave him, I should fall like the worst of women. This he knows, and knows that I should never have the power to do so. Our lives must remain unchanged, she continued, remembering another sentence in the letter. This life was a torture before, but of late it has grown worse than ever. What will it be now? And he knows all this, knows that I cannot repent because I breathe, because I love. He knows that nothing except falsehood and deceit can result from this, but he must needs prolong my torture. I know him, and I know that he swims in perjury like a fish in water. But no, I will not give him this pleasure. I will break this network of lies in which he wants to enwrap me. Come what may, anything is better than lies and deception. But how? Pose-moi. Pose-moi. Was there ever a woman so unhappy as I? No, I will break it. I will break it, she cried, springing to her feet and striving to keep back the tears. And she went to her writing-table to begin another letter to him, but in the lowest depths of her soul she felt that she had not the power to break the network of circumstances, 
that she had not the power to escape from the situation in which she was placed, false and dishonorable though it was. She sat down at the table, but instead of writing, she folded her arms on the table, and bowed her head on them, and began to weep like a child, with heaving breast and convulsive sobs. She wept because her visions about an explanation, about a settlement of her position, had vanished for ever. She knew that now all things would go on as before, and even worse than before. She felt that her position in society, which she had slighted, and even that morning counted as dross, was dear to her, that she should never have the strength to abandon it for the shameful position of a woman who has deserted her husband and son and joined her lover. She felt that in spite of all her efforts, she could never be stronger than herself. She never would know what freedom to love meant, but would be always a guilty woman, constantly under the threat of detection, deceiving her husband for the disgraceful society of an independent stranger, with whose life she could never join hers. She knew that this would be so, and yet at the same time it was so terrible that she could not acknowledge, even to herself, how it would end. And she wept, unrestrainedly as a child who has been punished, sobs. The steps of a lackey approaching brought her to herself, and hiding from him her face, she pretended to be writing. "'The courier would like his answer,' said the lackey. "'His answer? Oh, yes,' said Anna. "'Let him wait. I will ring.' "'What can I write?' she asked herself. "'How decide by myself alone? What do I know? What do I want?' Whom do I love? Again it seemed to her that in her soul she felt the dual nature. She was alarmed at this feeling, and seized on the first pretext for activity that presented itself, so that she might be freed from thoughts about herself. I must see Alexey. Thus, in thought, she called Vronsky. He alone can tell me what I must do. I will go to Betsy's. Perhaps I shall find him there. She completely forgot that on the evening before— when she told him that she was not going to the Princess Sverkaya's, he said that in that case he should not go there either. She went to the table again, and wrote her husband. I have received your letter. A. She rang, and gave it to the lackey. We are not going, she said to Anushka, who was just coming in. Not going at all? No, but don't unpack before tomorrow, and have the carriage wait. I am going to the Princess's. What gown shall you wear? End of chapter 16 Part 3 Chapter 17 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel The croquet party to which the Princess Sverskaya invited Anna was to consist of two ladies and their adorers, these two ladies were the leading representatives of a new and exclusive Petersburg clique, called, in imitation of an imitation, Le Sept Merveilles du Monde, the Seven Wonders of the World. Both of them belonged to the highest society, but to a circle absolutely hostile to that in which Anna moved. Moreover, old Stremov, one of the influential men of the city, and Lisa Merkolov's lover, was in the service of Alexey Alexandrovitch's enemies. From all these considerations, Anna did not care to go to Betsy's, and her refusal called forth the hints in the Princess Sverskaya's note. But now she decided to go, 
hoping to find Vronsky there. She reached the Princess Sverskaya's before the other guests. Just as she arrived, Vronsky's lackey, with his well-combed side-whiskers, like a camera-junker, was at the door. Raising his cap, he stepped inside to let her pass. Anna recognized him, and only then remembered that Vronsky had told her that he was not coming. Undoubtedly he had sent him with his excuses. As she was taking off her wraps in the anteroom, she heard the lackey, who rolled his R's like a camera-junker, say, from the count to the princess. At the same time he delivered his note. She wanted to ask him where his baron was. She wanted to go back and write him a note asking him to come to her, or to go and find him herself. But she could not follow out any of these plans, for the bell had already announced her presence, and one of the princess's lackeys was waiting at the door to usher her into the rooms beyond. The princess is in the garden. A word has been sent to her, "'Would you not like to step into the garden?' said a second lackey in the second room. Her position of uncertainty, of darkness, was just the same as at home. It was even worse, because she could not make any decision. She could not see Vronsky, and she was obliged to remain in the midst of a company of strangers diametrically opposed to her present mood. She wore a toilet which she knew was very becoming. She was not alone— she was surrounded by that solemn atmosphere of indolence so familiar. And on the whole, it was better to be there than at home. She was not obliged to think what she would do. Things would arrange themselves. Betsy came to meet her, in a white toilette absolutely stunning in its elegance, and Anna greeted her, as usual, with a smile. The Princess Sverskaya was accompanied by Ptushkievich, and a young relative who, to the great delight of the provincial family to which she belonged, was spending the summer with the famous princess. Apparently there was something unnatural in Anna's appearance, for Betsy immediately remarked it. "'I did not sleep well,' replied Anna, looking furtively at the lackey, who was coming, as she supposed, to bring Vronsky's note to the princess. "'How glad I am that you came,' said Betsy. "'I am just up, and should like to have a cup of tea before the others come. And you,' she said, addressing Tushkevich, "'had better go with Maska.' and try the croquet ground, which has just been clipped. You and I will have time for a little confidential talk while taking our tea. We'll have a cosy chat, won't we?" she added, in English, addressing Anna with a smile, and taking her hand, in which she held a sunshade. All the more willingly, because I cannot stay long. I must call on old Verdi. I have been promising for a hundred years to come and see her, said Anna, to whom the lie though contrary to her nature, seemed not only simple and easy, but even pleasurable. Why she said a thing, which she forgot the second after, she herself could not have told. She said it at haphazard, so that, in case Vronsky were not coming, she might have a way of escape, and try to find him elsewhere. And why she happened to select the name of old Freilina Vreda, rather than any other of her acquaintances, was likewise inexplicable. But, as events proved, out of all possible schemes for meeting Vronsky, she could not have chosen better. "'No, I shall not let you go,' replied Betsy, scrutinizing Anna's face. "'Indeed, if I were not so fond of you, I should be tempted to be vexed with you. Anybody would think that you were afraid of my company compromising you. Tea in the little parlour, if you please,' she said to the lackey, blinking her eyes as was habitual with her, and taking the letter from him, she began to read it. Alexey disappoints us,' she said in French. 
he writes that he cannot come she added in a tone as simple and unaffected as if it had never entered her mind that vronsky was of any more interest to anna than as a possible partner in a game of croquet anna knew that betsy knew all but as she heard betsy speak of vronsky now she almost brought herself to believe for a moment that she knew nothing ah she said indifferently as if it was a detail which did not interest her how she continued still smiling could your society compromise anyone this manner of playing with words this hiding a secret had a great charm for anna as it had for all women and it was not the necessity of secrecy or the reason for secrecy but the process itself that gave the pleasure i cannot be more catholic than the pope she said stremov and lisa merkalov they are the cream of the cream of society they are received everywhere but i she laid special stress on the i i have never been severe and intolerant i simply have not had time no but perhaps you prefer not to meet stremov let him break lances with alexey alexandrovitch in committee hearings that does not concern us but in society he is a lovely man as i know and a passionate lover of croquet but you shall see him and you must see how admirably he conducts himself in his ridiculous position as liza's aged lover he is very charming don't you know sappho stoltz she is the latest absolutely the latest style while betsy was saying all this anna perceived by her joyous intelligent eyes that she saw her embarrassment and was trying to put her at her ease they had gone into the little boudoir by the way i must write a word to alexey and betsy sat down at her writing-table hastily penned a few lines and enclosed them in an envelope i wrote him to come to dinner one of the ladies who is going to be here has no gentleman see if i am imperative enough excuse me if i leave you a moment please seal it and direct it she said at the door i have some arrangements to make without a moment's hesitation anna took betsy's seat at the table and without reading her note added these words i must see you without fail come to the brady's garden i will be there at six o'clock she sealed the letter and betsy coming in a moment later dispatched it at once the two ladies took their tea at the little table in the cool boudoir and had indeed a very cosy chat as the princess had promised until the arrival of her guests they expressed their judgments on them beginning with liza merkalov she is very charming and she has always been congenial to me said anna you ought to like her she adores you yesterday evening after the races she came to see me and was in despair not to find you she says you are a genuine heroine of a romance and that if she were a man she would commit a thousand follies for your sake Stremov told her she did that, even as she was. "'But please, tell me one thing I could never understand,' said Anna, after a moment of silence, and in a tone which clearly showed that she did not ask an idle question, but that what she wanted explained was more important to her than would appear. "'Please tell me, what are the relations between her and Prince Kaluski, the man they call Mishka? I've rarely seen them together. What are their relations?' A smile came into Betsy's eyes, and she looked keenly at Anna. "'It's a new kind,' she replied. "'All the ladies have adopted it. They've thrown their caps behind the mill. But there are ways, and ways, of throwing them.' "'Yes, but what are her relations with Kaluski?' Betsy, to Anna's surprise, broke into a gale of irresistible laughter, which was an unusual thing with her. 
but you are trespassing on the princess Mayakaya's province. It is the question of an enfant terrible, said Betsy, trying in vain to restrain her gaiety, but again breaking out into that contagious laughter which is the peculiarity of people who rarely laugh. But you must ask them, she at length managed to say, with the tears running down her cheeks. Well, you laugh, said Anna, in spite of herself joining in her friend's amusement, but I never could understand it at all, and I don't understand what part the husband plays. The husband? Lisa Merkalov's husband carries her plaid for her, and is always at her beck and call. But the real meaning of the affair no one cares to know. You know that in good society people don't speak, and don't even think of certain details of the toilet. Well, it is the same here. Are you going to Rolandaki's fete? asked Anna, to change the conversation. I don't think so, replied Betsy, and not looking at her companion, she carefully poured the fragrant tea into their little transparent cups. Then, having handed one to Anna, she rolled a cigarette, and, putting it into a silver holder, she began to smoke. You see, I am in a fortunate position, she began seriously, holding her cup in her hand. I understand you, and I understand Lisa. Lisa is one of these naive, childlike natures, who cannot distinguish between ill and good. At least, she was so when she was young, and now she knows that this simplicity is becoming to her. Now perhaps she purposely fails to understand the distinction, said Betsy with a sly smile. But all the same, it becomes her. You see, it is quite possible to look on things from a tragic standpoint, and to get torment out of them. And it is quite possible to look on it simply, and even gaily. Possibly you are inclined to look on things too tragically. How I should like to know others as well as I know myself, said Anna, with a serious and pensive look. Am I worse than others, or better? Worse, I think. You are an enfant terrible. An enfant terrible, was Betsy's comment. But here they are. End of chapter 17《》Chapter 18 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Steps were heard, and a man's voice, then a woman's voice, and laughter, and immediately after the expected guests came in, Sappho Stoltz and a young man called Vaska, whose face shone with exuberant health. It was evident that rich blood-making beef burgundy and truffles had accomplished their work vaska bowed to the two ladies and glanced at them but only for a second he followed sappho into the drawing-room and he followed her through the drawing-room as if he had been tied to her and he kept his brilliant eyes fastened on her as if he wished to devour her sappho stoltz was a blonde with black eyes she wore shoes with enormously high heels and she came in with slow vigorous steps and shook hands with the ladies energetically, like a man. Anna had never before met with this new celebrity, and was struck, not only by her beauty, but by the extravagance of her toilet and the boldness of her manners. On her head was a veritable scaffolding of false and natural hair of a lovely golden hue, and of a height corresponding to the mighty proportions of her protuberant and very visible bosom. Her dress was so tightly pulled back that at every movement it outlined the shape of her knees and thighs, and involuntarily the question arose, where, under this enormous, tottering mountain, did her neat little body, so exposed above 
and so tightly laced below, really end. Betsy made haste to introduce her to Anna. Can you imagine it? We almost ran over two soldiers, she instantly began to relate, winking, smiling, and kicking back her train, which she in turn threw too far over to the other side. I was coming with Vaska. Oh, yes, you were not acquainted. And she introduced the young man by his family name, laughing heartily at her mistake in calling him Vaska before strangers. Vaska bowed a second time to Anna, but said nothing to her. He turned to Sappho. The wager is lost. We came first, said he, smiling. You must pay. Sappho laughed still more gaily. Not now, though, she said. All right. I'll take it by and by. Very well. Very well. Oh, by the way, she suddenly cried out to the hostess. I forgot. Stupid that I was. I bring you a guest. He is here. The young guest whom Sappho presented, after having forgotten him, was a guest of such importance that, notwithstanding his youth, all the ladies rose to receive him. This was Sappho's new adorer, and, just as Vaska did, he followed her every step. Immediately after came Prince Kaluski and Liza Merkalov with Stremov. Liza was a rather thin brunette, with an oriental, indolent type of countenance, and with ravishing, and as everybody said, inscrutable eyes. The style of her dark dress was absolutely in keeping with her beauty. Anna noticed it, and approved. Liza was as quiet and unpretentious as Sappho was loud and obstreperous. But Liza, for Anna's taste, was vastly more attractive. Betsy, in speaking of her to Anna, had ridiculed her affectation of the manner of an innocent child, but when Anna saw her, she felt that this was not fair. Liza was really an innocent, gentle, and irresponsible woman, a little spoiled. To be sure, her morals were the same as Sappho's. She also had in her train, as if sewed to her, two adorers, one young, the other old, who devoured her with their eyes. But there was something about her better than her surroundings. She was like a diamond of the purest water surrounded by glass. The brilliancy shone out of her lovely, enigmatical eyes. The wearied and yet passionate look of her eyes, surrounded by dark circles, struck one by its absolute sincerity. Anyone looking into their depths would think that he knew her completely, and to know her was to love her. At the sight of Anna, her whole face suddenly lighted up with a happy smile. "'Oh, how glad I am to see you,' she said, as she went up to her. "'Yesterday afternoon at the races, I wanted to get to you, but you had just gone. I was so anxious to see you yesterday especially. Too bad, wasn't it?' she said, gazing at Anna with a look which seemed to disclose her whole soul. "'Yes, I would never have believed that anything could be so exciting,' replied Anna, with the same color. The company now began to get ready to go to the lawn. "'I am not going,' said Liza, sitting down near Anna. "'You're not going, are you? What pleasure can anyone find in croquet?' "'But I am very fond of it,' said Anna. "'There, how is it that you don't get ennui? To look at you is a joy. You live, but I vegetate.' "'How vegetate? Why, they say that you have the gayest society in Petersburg,' said Anna. "'Perhaps those who are not of our circle are still more ennui. But we, it seems to me, are not happy, but bored, terribly bored.' Sappho lighted a cigarette and went to the lawn with the two young men. Betsy and Stremov stayed at the tea-table. "'How bored?' asked Betsy. 
Sappho says she had a delightful evening with you yesterday. Oh, how unendurable it was, said Liza. They all came to my house with me after the races, and it was all so utterly monotonous. It is for ever one and the same thing. They sat on the divans the whole evening. How could that be delightful? No, but what do you do to keep from being bored? she asked again of Anna. It is enough to look at you. You are evidently a woman who can be happy or unhappy, but never ennui. Now, explain what you do. I don't do anything, said Anna, confused by such a stream of questions. That is the best way, said Stremov, joining the conversation. Stremov was a man of fifty years old, rather grey but well preserved, very ugly, but with a face full of character and intelligence. Lisa Merkalov was his wife's niece, and he spent with her all his leisure time. Though he was an employee in the service of Alexey Alexandrovitch's political enemies, he endeavoured, now that he met Anna in society, to act the man of the world, and be exceedingly amiable to his enemy's wife. "'The very best way is to do nothing,' he continued, with his wise smile. "'I have been telling you this long time,' turning to Liza Merkalov, "'that, if you don't want to be bored, you must not think it is possible to be bored, just as one must not be afraid of sleeping if he is troubled with insomnia. This is just what Anna Arkadyevna told you.' I should be very glad if I had said so, said Anna, because it is not only clever, it is true. But will you tell me why it is not hard to go to sleep, and not hard to be free from ennui? To sleep you must work, and to be happy you must also work. But how can I work, when my labor is useful to no one? But to make believe, I neither can nor will. You are incorrigible, said he, looking at her, but turning to Anna again. He rarely met her, and could not speak well to her except in the way of small talk, but he understood how to say light things gracefully, and he asked her when she was going back to Petersburg, and whether she liked the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. And he asked her these questions in a manner which showed his desire to be her friend, and to express his consideration and respect. Tushkevich came in just then, and explained that the whole company was waiting for the croquet players. "'No, don't go, I beg of you,' said Liza, when she found that Anna was not intending to stay. Stremov added his persuasions. "'It is too great a contrast,' said he, "'between our society and old Veredes. And then you will be for her only an object of slander, while here you will only awaken very different sentiments, quite the opposite of slander and ill-feeling.' Anna remained for a moment in uncertainty. This witty man's flattering words— the childlike and naive sympathy shown her by Liza Merkalov, and all this agreeable social atmosphere, so opposed to what she expected elsewhere, caused her a moment of hesitation. Could she not postpone that terrible moment of explanation? But remembering what she had to expect alone at home if she should not come to some decision, remembering the pain that she had felt when she pulled her hair with both hands, not knowing what she did, so great was her mental anguish, she took leave and went. End of chapter 18。Part 3, Chapter 19 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vronsky, in spite of his worldly life and his apparent frivolity, was a man who detested confusion. Once, when still a lad in the school of pages, 
he found himself short of money, and met with a humiliating refusal when he tried to borrow. He vowed that henceforth he would not expose himself to such a humiliation again, and he kept his word. In order to keep his affairs in order, he made more or less often, according to circumstances, but at least five times a year, an examination of his affairs. He called this straightening his affairs, or, in French, faire sa lésive. The morning after the races, Vronsky woke late, and without stopping to shave or take his bath, put on his kittel, or soldier's linen frock, and, placing his money and bills and papers on the table, proceeded to the work of settling his accounts. Petritsky, knowing that his comrade was likely to be irritable when engaged in such occupation, quietly got up and slipped out without disturbing him. Every man acquainted, even to the minutest details, with all the complications of his surroundings, involuntarily supposes that the complications and tribulations of his life are a personal and private grievance peculiar to himself, and never thinks that others are subjected to the same complications of their personal troubles he himself is. Thus it seemed to Vronsky. And not without inward pride, and not without reason, he felt that, until the present time, he had done well in avoiding the embarrassments to which everyone else would have succumbed. But he felt that now it was necessary for him to examine into his affairs, so as not to be embarrassed. First, because it was the easiest to settle, Vronsky investigated his pecuniary status. He wrote in his fluent, delicate hand a schedule of all his debts, and adding them up, found that the total amounted to seventeen thousand roubles and some odd hundreds, which he let go for the sake of clearness. Counting up his ready money and his bank-book, he had only eighteen hundred roubles, with no hope of more until the new year. Looking over the schedule of his debts, Vronsky classified them, putting them into three categories. First, the urgent debts, or, in other words, those that required ready money, so that, in case of requisition, there might not be a moment of delay. These amounted to four thousand roubles, fifteen hundred for his horse, and twenty-five hundred as a guarantee for his young comrade, Venevsky, who had, in Vronsky's company, lost this amount in playing with the sharper. Vronsky, at the time, had wanted to hand over the money, since he had it with him, but Venevsky and Yashvin insisted on paying it, rather than Vronsky, who had not been playing. This was all very well, but Vronsky knew that in this disgraceful affair, in which his only participation was going as Venevsky's guarantee, it was necessary to have these twenty-five hundred roubles ready to throw at the rascal's head, and not to have any words with him. Thus, he had to reckon the category of urgent debts as four thousand roubles. In the second category were eight thousand roubles of debts, and these were less imperative. These were what he owed on his stable account, for oats and hay, to his English trainer, and other incidentals. At a pinch, two thousand would suffice to leave him perfectly easy in mind. The remaining debts were to his tailor and other furnishers, and they could wait. In conclusion, he found that he needed, for immediate use, six thousand roubles, and he had only eighteen hundred. For a man with an income of a hundred thousand roubles, as people supposed Vronsky to have, it would seem as if such debts as these could not be very embarrassing. But the fact was that he had not an income of a hundred thousand roubles. The large paternal estate, producing two hundred thousand roubles a year, had been divided between the two brothers. But when the elder brother, laden with debts, married the princess Varya Tukurov, 
the daughter of a decabrist. Footnote. The decabrists were the revolutionists of December 1825, who were banished at the time of the accession of the Emperor Nicholas. End note. Who brought him no fortune. Alexei yielded him his share of the inheritance, reserving only an income of 25,000 rubles. He told his brother that this would be sufficient for him until he married, which he thought would never happen. His brother, who was in command of one of the most expensive regiments in the service, had only just married, and could not refuse this gift. His mother, who possessed an independent fortune, kept 25,000 rubles for herself, and gave her younger son a yearly allowance of 20,000 rubles, and Alexey spent the whole of it. Recently, the countess, angry with him on account of his departure from Moscow and his disgraceful liaison, had ceased to remit him any money. So that Vronsky, who was accustomed to living on a 45,000-ruble footing, and having this year only 25,000, found himself in extremity. He could not apply to his mother to help him out of his difficulty, for her letter which he had received the day before angered him by the insinuations which it contained. She was ready, it said, to help him along in society, or to advance him in his career, but not in this present life which was scandalizing all the best people. His mother's attempt to bribe him wounded him in the tenderest spot in his heart, and he felt more coldly towards her than ever. He could not retract his magnanimous promise given to his brother, although he felt now, in view of his rather uncertain relationship with Madame Karinin, that his magnanimous promise had been given too hastily, and that, even though he were not married, the hundred thousand roubles might stand him in good steed, but it was impossible to retract. The impossibility of taking back what he had given was made clear to him, especially when he remembered his brother's wife, when he remembered how this gentle, excellent Varya had always made him understand that she should not forget his generosity, and never cease to appreciate it. It would be as impossible to strike a woman, to steal, or to lie. There was only one possible and practical thing, and Vronsky adopted it without a moment's hesitation. To borrow ten thousand roubles from a usurer, there was no difficulty about this, to reduce his expenses as much as he could, and to sell his racehorses. Having decided to do this, he immediately wrote a letter to Rolandaki, who had many times offered to buy his stud. Then he sent for his English trainer and the usurer, and devoted the money which he had on hand to various accounts. Having finished this business, he wrote a cold and sharp reply to his mother, and then, taking from his portfolio Anna's last three letters, he re-read them, burned them, and, remembering his last conversation with her, fell into deep meditation. End of chapter 19 Part three, chapter twenty of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vronsky's life had been especially happy because he had a special code of rules, which infallibly determined all he ought to do and ought not to do. This code embraced a very small circle of duties, but the rules allowed no manner of question and as Vronsky never had occasion to go outside of this circle, he had never been obliged to hesitate about what he had to do. These rules prescribed unfailingly that it was necessary to pay gambling debts, but not his tailor's bills, and it was not permissible to tell lies, except to women, that it was not right to deceive anyone except a husband, that insults could be committed, but never pardoned. 
All these precepts might be wrong and illogical, but they were indubitable, and, in fulfilling them, Vronsky felt that he was calm and had the right to hold his head high. Only very recently, however, and during the progress of his intimacy with Anna, Vronsky began to perceive that his code did not fully determine all conditions, and the future promised to present difficulties and doubts through the labyrinth of which he could not find the guiding thread. Hitherto his relations with Anna and her husband had been, on his part, simple and clear. They were in harmony with the code that guided him. She was a perfect lady, and she had given him her love. He loved her, and therefore she had a right to his respect, even more than if she had been his legal wife. He would have cut off his hand sooner than permit himself a word or an illusion that might wound her, or that would seem to fail in that respect on which, as a woman, she ought to count. His relations with society were also clear. All might know or suspect his relations with her, but no one should dare to speak of it. At the first hint, he was prepared to cause the speaker to hold his peace, and to respect the non-existent honor of the woman whom he loved. Still more clear were his relations to the husband. From the first moment when Anna gave him her love, he considered his right, and his only, imprescriptible. The husband was merely a superfluous and meddlesome person. Without doubt, he was in a pitiable position. But what could be done about it? The only right that was left him was to demand satisfaction with arms in their hands, and for this Vronsky was wholly willing. In the last few days, however, new complications had arisen in their relationship, and Vronsky was alarmed at his uncertainty. Only the evening before, Anna had confessed that she was pregnant, and he felt that this news and what she expected from him demanded something that was not defined by the code of rules by which he ruled his life. Indeed, he was taken unawares, and at the first moment, when she told him her situation, his heart bade him take her from her husband. He saw this, but now, on reflection, he clearly saw that it would be better not to do so, but at the same time he was alarmed and perplexed. If I urge her to leave her husband, it would mean, unite her life with mine. Am I ready for that? How can I elope with her when I have no money? Let us admit that I could manage that. But how can I take her away while I am connected with the service? If I should decide upon this, I should have to get money and throw up my commission. Here he fell into thought. The question of resigning, or not, brought him face to face with another interest of his life known only to himself, though it formed the principal spur to his action. Ambition had been the dream of his childhood and youth, a dream which he did not confess even to himself, but which was nevertheless a passion so strong that now it fought with his love. His first advances in society, and in his military career, had been brilliant, but two years before he had made a serious blunder. Wishing to show his independence, and to cause a sensation, he refused a promotion offered him, with the hope that his refusal would put a still higher value upon him. But it seemed that he was too confident, and since then he had been neglected. Finding himself reduced nolens volens to the position of an independent man, he accepted it, behaving with perfect propriety and wisdom, as if he had nothing to complain of, 
and counted himself slighted by no one, but asked only to be left in peace to amuse himself as he pleased. In reality, as the year went on, and even before he went to Moscow, this pleasure had begun to pall on him. He felt that this independent position of a man capable of doing anything, but caring to do nothing, was beginning to grow tame, that many people were beginning to think that he was incapable of doing anything, instead of being a good, honourable young fellow. His relations with Madame Karenin, by making such a sensation and attracting attention to him, for a time calmed the gnawings of the worm of ambition. But lately this worm had begun to gnaw with renewed energy. Serpakhoivskoy, the friend of his childhood, belonging to his own circle, a chum of his in the school of pages, who had graduated with him, who had been his rival in the classroom and in gymnasium, in his pranks and in his dreams of ambition, had just returned from Central Asia, where he had been promoted to Tchins, and won honors rarely given to such a young general. He had only just come to Petersburg, and people were talking about him as a new rising star of the first magnitude. Just Vronsky's age, and his intimate friend, he was a general, and was expecting an appointment which would give him great influence in the affairs of the country, while Vronsky, though he was independent and brilliant, and loved by a lovely woman, was only a rotmeister, or a cavalry captain, whom they allowed to remain as independent as he pleased. Of course, he said to himself, I am not envious of Serpukhovskoy, and could not be, but his promotion proves that a man like me needs only to bide his time in order to make a rapid rise in his profession. Three years ago he was in the same position as I am now. If I left the service, I should burn my ships. If I stay in the service, I lose nothing. She herself told me that she did not want to change her position, and I, who am sure of her love, cannot be envious of Serpukhovskoy. And, slowly twisting his moustache, he arose from the table and began to walk up and down the room. His eyes shone with extraordinary brilliancy, and he was conscious of that calm, even, joyous state of mind which he always felt after he had cleared up any situation. All was now clear and orderly as ever. He shaved, took a cold-water bath, dressed, and prepared to go out. End of chapter 20「Part three, Chapter twenty one of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. I was coming for you, said Petritsky, entering the room. Your cleaning up took a long time today, didn't it? Are you through? All through, said Vronsky, smiling only with his eyes and continuing to twist the ends of his moustache deliberately, as if, after this work of regulation were accomplished, any rash and quick motion might destroy it. "'You always come out of this operation as from a bath,' said Petritsky. "'I come from Gritska's, so they called their regimental commander. They are waiting for you.' Vronsky looked at his comrade without replying. His thoughts were elsewhere. "'Ah, then that music is at his house,' he remarked, hearing the well-known sounds of waltzes and polkas played by a military band." "'What is the celebration?' "'Serpukhovskoy has come.' "'Ah,' said Vronsky, "'I did not know it.' The smile in his eyes was brighter than ever. 
having once decided for himself that he was happy in his love, he had elected to sacrifice his ambition to his love. Having at least taken on himself to play this part, he could feel neither envy at Serpukhovskoy nor vexation because he, returning to the regiment, had not come first to see him. Serpukhovskoy was a good friend of his, and Vronsky was glad for him. Ah, I am very glad. The regimental commander, Demin, lived in a large, signorial mansion. All the company had assembled on the lower front balcony. What first struck Vronsky's eyes as he reached the door were the singers of the regiment, in summer uniform, grouped around a keg of vodka, and the healthy, jovial face of the regimental commander as he stood surrounded by his officers. He had come out on the front step of the balcony, and was screaming louder than the band, which was playing one of Offenbach's quadrilles. He was giving some orders and gesticulating to a group of soldiers on one side. A group of soldiers, the Wachmister, or sergeant, and a few non-commissioned officers, reached the balcony at the same instant with Vronsky. The regimental commander, who had been to the table, returned with a glass of champagne to the front steps, and proposed the toast. To the health of our old comrade, the brave general, Prince Serpukhovskoy, hurrah! Behind the regimental commander came Serpukhovskoy, smiling, with a glass in his hand. You are always young, Bondarenko, said he to the sergeant, a ruddy-cheeked soldier, who stood directly in front of him. Vronsky had not seen Serpukhovskoy for three years. He had grown older and wore whiskers, but he was the same well-built man, striking not so much for his good looks as for the nobility and gentleness of his face and his whole bearing. The only change that Vronsky noted in him was the slight but constant radiance which can generally be seen in the faces of people who have succeeded and made everybody else believe in their success. Vronsky had seen it in other people, and now he detected it in Serpukhovskoy. As he descended the steps he caught sight of Vronsky, and a smile of joy irradiated his face. He nodded to him, lifting his wine-cup as a greeting, and at the same time to signify that first he must drink with the sergeant, who, standing perfectly straight, had puckered his lips for the kiss. "'Well, here he is,' cried the regimental commander. "'But Yashvin was telling me that you were in one of your bad humours.' Serpukhovskoy, having kissed the young sergeant's moist, fresh lips, wiped his mouth with his handkerchief, and came to Vronsky. "'Well, how glad I am!' he said, shaking hands and drawing him on one side. "'Bring him along!' cried the regimental commander to Yashvin, pointing to Vronsky, and descending to join the soldiers. "'Why weren't you at the races yesterday? I expected to see you,' said Vronsky, to Serpukhovskoy, studying his face. "'I did come, but too late. Excuse me,' he said. And, turning to his aide, "'Please have this distributed with my thanks. Only have it get to the men.' and he hurriedly took out of his pocket-book three hundred-ruble notes, and the colour came into his face. "'Vronsky, will you have something to eat or drink?' asked Yashvin. "'Hey, bring something to the count here. There, now, drink this.' The feasting at the regimental commanders lasted a long time. They drank a great deal. They toasted Serpukhovskoy, and carried him on their shoulders. They cheered also the regimental commander." Then the regimental commander and Petritsky danced a Russian dance, while the regimental singers made the music. 
and when he was tired, he sat down on a bench in the court, and tried to prove to Yashvin Russia's superiority over Prussia, especially in cavalry charges, and the gaiety calmed down for a moment. Seprakovskoy went into the house to wash his hands, and found Vronsky in the toilet room. Vronsky was splashing the water. He had taken off his kittle, and was sousing his head and his handsome neck under the tap of the basin, and rubbing them with his hands. When he finished his abulations, he sat down by Serpukhovskoy. They sat together on a divanchik, and a conversation very interesting to both parties arose between them. "'I have learned all about you through my wife,' said Serpukhovskoy. "'I am glad that you see her so often.' She is a friend of Varya's, and they are the only women in Petersburg that I care to see, said Vronsky with a smile. He smiled because he foresaw on what subject the conversation would turn, and it was pleasing to him. The only ones, repeated Serpukhovskoy, also smiling. Yes, and I, too, know all about you, but not through your wife only, said Vronsky, cutting the illusion short by the sudden stern expression of his face. I am very glad at your success but not the least surprised. I expected even more. Serpukhovskoy smiled again. This flattering opinion of him pleased him, and he saw no reason to hide it. I, on the contrary, I confess frankly, expected less. But I am glad, very glad. I am ambitious. It is my weakness, and I confess it. Perhaps you wouldn't confess it if you weren't successful, suggested Vronsky. I don't think so, replied Serpukhovskoy, smiling again. I would not say that life would not be worth living without it, but it would be tiresome. Of course, I may be mistaken, but it seems to me that I have some of the qualifications necessary to the sphere of activity which I have chosen, and that in my hands power of any sort soever would be better placed than in the hands of many whom I know, said Serpukhovskoy, with the radiant expression of success and therefore the nearer I am to this, the more contented I feel. Perhaps this is true for you, but not for everybody. I used to think so, and yet I live, and no longer find that ambition is the only aim of existence. Here we have it! Here we have it! cried Serpukhovskoy, laughing. I began by saying that I heard about you, about your refusal. Of course I approved of you. There is a way for everything— and I think that your action itself was well, but you did not do it in the right way. What is done is done, and you know I never go back on what I have done. Besides, I am very well fixed. Very well, for a time, but you will not be contented so for ever. I do not refer to your brother. He is a very good fellow, just like this host of ours. Hark, hear that, he added, hearing the shouts and hurrahs, he may be happy, but this will not satisfy you. I don't say that I am satisfied. Well, this is not the only thing. Such men as you are necessary. To whom? To whom? To society. To Russia. Russia needs men. She needs a party. Otherwise all is going, and will go, to the dogs. What do you mean? Burntonev's party against the Russian communists? No said Serpukhovskoy, with a grimace of vexation, that he should be accused of any such nonsense. Tutsa es un blagu, all that is fudge. This always has been, and always will be. There aren't any communists. 
but intriguing people must needs invent some malignant dangerous party. It's an old joke. No, a powerful party is needed, of independent men, like you and me. But why? Vronsky named several influential men. But why aren't they among the independents? Simply because they had not, through birth, an independent position, or a name, and have not lived near the sun, as we have. They can be bought by money or flattery, and to maintain themselves they must fix on a certain course and follow it, though they do not attach any importance to it, and even though it may be bad. They have only one object in view, the means of securing a home at the expense of the crown and certain salaries. Cela n'est pas plus vincus ça, when you look at their cards. Maybe I am worse, or more foolish than they, though I don't see why I should be. But I have, and you have, the one inestimable advantage, that it is harder to buy us, and such men are more than ever necessary now. Vronsky listened attentively, not only because of the meaning of his words, but because of their connection with the case of Serpukovskoy himself, who was about to engage in the struggle with power, and was entering into that official world with its sympathies and antipathies, while he was accustomed only with the interests of his squadron. Vronsky perceived how strong Serpukovskoy might be, with his unfailing aptitude for invention, his quickness of comprehension, his intellect and fluent speech, so rarely met with in the circle in which he lived. And, though his conscience reproached him, he felt a twinge of envy. "'All that I need for this is the one essential thing,' said he, "'the desire for power. I had it, but it is gone.' "'Excuse me, I don't believe you,' said Serpukovskoye, smiling. "'No, it is true. True. Now, to be frank with you,' persisted Vronsky. "'Yes, true now,' That is another affair. This now may not last forever. Maybe. You say maybe, and I tell you certainly not, continued Serpukovskoy, as if he divined his thought. And this is why I wanted to see you. You acted as you felt was necessary. I understand that. But it is not necessary for you to stick to it. All I ask of you is carte blanche for the future. I am not your patron, and yet why should I not take you under my protection? Have you not often done as much for me? I hope that our friendship stands above that. There, said he, smiling at him tenderly like a woman. Give me carte blanche. Come out of your regiment, and I will help you along so that it won't be known. But understand that I want nothing, said Vronsky, except that all should be as it has been. Serpukovskoy arose and stood facing him. You say that all must be as it has been. I understand what you mean, but listen to me. We are of the same age. Maybe you have known more women than I. His smile and his gesture told Vronsky to have no fear that he would not touch gently and delicately on the tender spot. But I am married, and, believe me, as some one or other wrote, he who knows only his wife, and loves her, understands all women better than if he had known a thousand. "'We are coming directly,' cried Vronsky to an officer who looked into the room and said he was sent by the regimental commander. Vronsky now felt curious to hear and to know what Serpukovskoy would say to him. "'And this is my idea. Women are the principal stumbling-block in the way of a man's activity. 
it is hard to love a woman and to do anything else there is only one way to love with comfort and without hindrance and that is to marry and how can i explain to you what i mean continued serpikovskoy who was fond of metaphors wait wait yes how can you carry a burden and do anything with your hands until the burden is tied on your back and so it is with marriage and i found this out when i married my hands suddenly became free but to carry this fardeau without marriage your hands will become so full that you can't do anything look at mazenkov krupov they ruined their careers through women but what women said vronsky remembering the french woman and the actress for whom these two men had formed attachments the higher the woman is in the social scale the greater the difficulty it is just the same as not to carry your fardeau in your hands but to tear it from some other man you have never loved murmured vronsky looking straight ahead and thinking of anna perhaps but you think of what i have told you and one more thing women are all more material than men we make something immense out of love but they are all terre a terre of the earth earthy we'll be there immediately he said addressing the lackey who was coming into the room but the lackey was not a messenger for him as he supposed the lackey brought vronsky a note a man brought this from the princess sverskaya vronsky hastily read the note and grew red in the face i have a headache i'm going home he said to serpukovskoy well then prochai farewell will you not give me carte blanche we will talk about it by and by i will call on you in petersburg end of chapter 21「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel It was already six o'clock, and in order not to miss his appointment, or to go with his own horses, which everybody knew, Vronsky engaged Yashvin's hired carriage, and told the Izvoshchik to drive with all speed. It was a spacious old carriage with room for four. He sat in one corner, stretched his legs out on the empty seat, and began to think. The confused consciousness of the order in which he had regulated his affairs, the confused recollection of the friendship and flattery of Serpukovskoy, who assured him that he was an indispensable man, and most of all, the expectation of the coming interview, conspired to give him a keen sense of the joy of living. This impression was so powerful that he could not keep from smiling. He stretched his legs, threw one knee over the other, felt for the contusion that his fall had given him the evening before, and drew several long breaths with full lungs. Good, very good, he said to himself. Oftentimes before he had felt a pleasure in the possession of his body, but never had he so loved it, or loved himself, as now. It was even pleasurable to feel the slight soreness in his leg. Pleasurable was the mouse-like sensation of motion on his breast when he breathed. This same bright, fresh, August day, which so impressed Anna with his hopelessness, stimulated, vitalized him, and cooled his face and neck, which still burned from the reaction after his bath. The odor of brilliantine from his moustaches seemed pleasant to him in this fresh atmosphere. 
everything that he saw from the carriage window seemed to him in this cool, pure air, in this pale light of the dying day, fresh, joyous, and healthful, like himself. And the housetop shining in the rays of the setting sun, the outlines of the fences and the edifices along the way, and the shapes of the occasional pedestrians and carriages hurrying hither and thither, and the motionless green of the trees and the lawns, and the fields with their straight-cut rows of potato-hills, and the oblique shadows cast by the houses and the trees, and even by the potato-hills, all was as beautiful as an exquisite landscape just from the master's hand, and freshly varnished. "'Make haste! Make haste!' he shouted, pushing up through the window a three-ruble note to the driver, who turned round and looked down at him. The Izvoshchik's hand arranged something about the lantern, then the crack of the knout was heard, and the carriage whirled rapidly over the even pavement. "'I need nothing, nothing, but this pleasure,' he thought, as his eyes rested on the knob of the bell, fastened between the windows, and he imagined Anna as she seemed when he last saw her. "'The farther I go, the more I love her. Ah, here's the garden of the Verdadacha. Where shall I find her? How? But why did she make this appointment?' and why did she write on Betsy's note? This struck him for the first time, but he had no time to think about it. He stopped the driver before they reached the driveway, and, getting out of the carriage, he went up the walk which led to the house. There was no one on the avenue, but looking toward the right, he saw her. Her face was covered with a veil, but with a joyful glance he recognized her immediately, by her graceful motion as she walked, by the slope of her shoulders, and the poise of her head and he felt as if an electric shock had passed through him. With new strength he felt the joy of life and of action, even from the movements of his limbs to the involuntary motion of respiration, and something made his lips twitch. When he came near her, she eagerly seized his hand. "'You are not angry because I asked you to come. I absolutely needed to see you,' she said, and the serious and stern closing of the lips which he saw under the veil quickly put an end to his jubilant spirits. I angry. But how did you come? When? No matter about that, she said, taking Vronsky's arm. Come, I must have a talk with you. He perceived that something had happened, and that their interview would not be joyful. While with her, he could not control his will. Though he did not know what her agitation portended, yet he felt that it had taken possession of him also. "'What is it? What is the matter?' he asked, pressing her arm, and trying to read her thoughts by her face. She went a few steps in silence, so as to get her breath. Then she suddenly halted. "'I did not tell you last evening,' she began, breathing fast and painfully, "'that, on the way home with Alexey Alexandrovitch, I confessed to him everything. I said that I could not be his wife, that—and I told him all.' He listened, involuntarily leaning toward her, as if he wished to lighten for her the difficulty of this confidence, but as soon as she finished speaking, he suddenly drew himself up, and his face assumed a haughty and stern expression. "'Yes, yes, that was better, a thousand times better. I understand how hard it must have been,' he said. But she did not heed his words. She read his thoughts by the expression of his face. She could not know that the expression of his face arose from the first thought that came into his mind, 
the thought that a duel could not now be avoided. Never had a thought of a duel entered her head, and therefore she interpreted the momentary expression of sternness in a quite different way. Since the arrival of her husband's letter, she felt in the bottom of her heart that all would remain as before, that she should not have the strength to sacrifice her position in the world, to abandon her son and join her lover. The morning spent with the Princess Sverskaya confirmed her in this. But this interview with Vronsky seemed to her to be of vital importance. She hoped that it might change their relations and save her. If, on hearing this news, he had said decidedly, passionately, without a moment's hesitation, leave all and come with me, she would have even abandoned her son and gone with him. But what she told him did not produce in him at all the impression which she had expected. He seemed, if anything, vexed and angry. It was not hard for me at all. It came out of its own accord, she said with a touch of irritation. And here, she drew her husband's letter from her glove. I understand, I understand, interrupted Vronsky, taking the letter but not reading it, and trying to calm Anna. The one thing I wanted, the one thing I prayed for, to put an end to this situation, so that I could devote my whole life to your happiness. Why do you say that to me? she asked. Can I doubt it? If I doubt it— Who are those coming? asked Vronsky abruptly, seeing two ladies coming in their direction. Perhaps they know us. And he hastily drew Anna with him down a side alley. Ugh, oh, it is all the same to me, she said. Her lips trembled, and it seemed to Vronsky that her eyes looked at him from under her veil with strange hatred. As I said, in all this affair I cannot doubt you. But here is what he wrote me. Read it. And again she halted. Again, as when he first learned of Anna's rupture with her husband, Vronsky, beginning to read this letter, involuntarily abandoned himself to the impression awakened in him by the thought of his relations to the deceived husband. Now that he had the letter in his hand, he imagined the challenge which he would receive that day or the next, and the duel itself, at the moment when, with the same cool and haughty expression which now set his face, he would stand in front of his adversary, and, having discharged his weapon in the air, would wait the outraged husband's shot. At this very instant, Serpukhovskoy's words, and what he himself had felt that day, flashed through his mind. Better not to tie yourself down. And she knew that he could not express his thought before her. After he read the note, he raised his eyes to her, and there was indecision in his look. She instantly perceived that he had thought this matter over before. She knew that whatever he said to her, he would not say all that he thought, and she realized that her last hope had vanished. This was not what she had desired. "'You see what sort of a man he is,' said she, with faltering voice. "'He—' "'Excuse me, but I am glad of this,' said Vronsky, interrupting. "'For God's sake, let me speak,' he quickly added, beseeching her with his look to give him time to explain his words. "'I am glad, because this cannot, and never could go on as he imagines.' "'Why can't it?' demanded Anna, holding back her tears, and evidently attaching no importance to what he said. She felt that her fate was already settled. Vronsky meant that after the duel, which he felt was inevitable, this situation must be changed, but he said something quite different. It cannot go on. I hope that now you will leave him. I hope... 
he stumbled and grew red, that you will allow me to take charge of our lives and regulate them. Tomorrow, he began to say. She did not allow him to finish. And my son, she cried, do you see what he writes? I must leave him. But I cannot, and I will not do that. But for God's sake, which is better, to leave your son, or to continue this humiliating situation? For whom is it a humiliating situation? For all of us, and especially for you. You say humiliating. Don't say that. For me that word has no meaning, she said, with trembling voice. She could not bear now to have him tell her a falsehood. Her love for him was trembling in the balance, and she wished to love him. You must know that for me, on that day when I first loved you, everything was transformed. For me there was one thing, and only one thing, your love. If it is mine, then I feel myself so high, so firm, that nothing can be humiliating to me. I am proud of my position, because— proud that— proud— she did not say why she was proud. Tears of shame and despair choked her utterance. She stopped and began to sob. He also felt that something rose in his throat. For the first time in his life he felt ready to cry. He could not have said what affected him so. He was sorry for her, and he felt that he could not help her. And, more than all, he knew that he was the cause of her unhappiness, that he had done something abominable. "'Then a divorce is impossible,' he asked gently. She shook her head without replying. "'Then could you not take your son and leave him?' "'Yes, but all this depends on him. Now I must go to him,' she said dryly. Her presentiment that all would be as before was verified. "'I shall be in Petersburg Tuesday, and everything will be decided.' "'Yes,' she repeated. "'But we shall not speak any more about that.' Anna's carriage, which she sent away with the order to come back for her at the railing of the Verde Garden, was approaching. Anna took leave of Vronsky and went home. End of chapter 22《Part 3, Chapter 23 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The commission of the 2nd of June usually held its sittings on Monday. Alexey Alexandrovitch entered the committee room, bowed to the members and the president as usual, and took his place, laying his hand on the papers made ready for him. Among the number were the data which he needed, and the outline of the proposition that he intended to make. These notes, however, were not necessary. His grasp of the subject was complete, and he did not need to refresh his memory as to what he was going to say. He knew that when the time came, and he should see his adversary vainly endeavouring to put on an expression of indifference, his speech would come of itself in better shape than he could now determine. He felt that the meaning of his speech was so great that every word would have its importance. Meantime, as he listened to the reading of the report, he had a most innocent and inoffensive expression. No one, seeing his white hands, with their swollen veins, his delicate, long fingers doubling up the two ends of the sheet of white paper lying before him, and his expression of weariness, as he sat with head on one side, would have believed it possible that, in a few moments, 
from his lips would proceed a speech which would raise a terrible tempest, cause the members of the commission to outdo one another in screaming, and oblige the president to call them to order. When the report was finished, Alexey Alexandrovitch, in his weak, shrill voice, said that he had a few observations to make in regard to the situation of the foreign tribes. Attention was concentrated on him. Alexey Alexandrovitch cleared his throat, and, not looking at his adversary, but, as he always did at the beginning of his speeches, addressing the person who sat nearest in front of him, who happened to be a little, meek old man, without the slightest importance in the commission, began to deliver his views. When he reached the matter of the fundamental and organic law, his adversary leaped to his feet and began to reply. Stremov, who was also a member of the commission, and also touched to the quick, arose to defend himself, and the session proved to be excessively stormy. But Alexey Alexandrovitch triumphed, and his proposition was accepted. The three new commissions were appointed, and the next day, in a certain Petersburg circle, this session formed the staple topic of conversation. Alexey Alexandrovitch's success far outstripped his anticipations. The next morning, which was Tuesday, Alexey Alexandrovitch, on awaking, recalled with pleasure his victory of the day before, and he could not repress a smile, although he wanted to appear indifferent, when the director of the chancellery, wishing to flatter him, told him of the rumors which had reached his ears in regard to the proceedings of the commission. Occupied as he was with the director of the chancellery, Alexey Alexandrovitch absolutely forgot that the day was Tuesday, the day set by him for Anna Arkadyevna's return, and he was surprised and disagreeably impressed when a domestic came to announce that she had come. Anna reached Petersburg early in the morning. A carriage had been sent for her in response to her telegram, and so Alexey Alexandrovitch might have known of her coming. But when she came, he did not go to receive her. She was told that he had not yet gone out, but was busy with the director of the chancellery. She bade the servant announce her arrival, and then went to her boudoir and began to unpack her things, expecting that he would come to her. But an hour passed, and he did not appear. She went to the dining-room, under the pretext of giving some orders, and spoke unusually loud, thinking that he would join her there. But still, he did not come, though she heard him come to the door of his library, accompanying the director of the chancellery. She knew that it was his habit about this time to go to his office, and she wanted to see him before that, so that their plan of action might be decided. She passed through the hall, and, finally making up her mind, went to him. She stepped into the library. Dressed in his uniform, apparently ready to take his departure, he was sitting at a little table, leaning his elbows on it, and wrapped in melancholy thought. She saw him before he noticed her, and she knew that he was thinking of her. When he caught sight of her, he started to get up, hesitated, and then, for the first time since Anna had known him, he blushed. Then, quickly rising, he advanced toward her, not looking at her eyes, but at her forehead and hair. He came to her, took her by the hand, and invited her to sit down. "'I am very glad that you have come,' he stammered, sitting down near her, and evidently desiring to talk with her. Several times he began to speak, but hesitated. Although she was prepared for this interview, and had made up her mind to defend herself, and accuse him, she did not know what to say to him, 
and she felt sorry for him, and so the silence lasted some little time. "'Is Sir Rosa well?' at length he asked, and, without waiting for an answer, he added, "'I shall not dine at home to-day. I have to leave immediately.' "'I intended to start for Moscow,' said Anna. "'No, you did very, very well to come home,' he replied, and again was silent. Seeing that it was beyond his strength to begin the conversation, she herself began. "'Alexey Alexandrovitch,' she said, looking at him, and not dropping her eyes under his gaze, which was still concentrated on her high dress, "'I am a guilty woman. I am a wicked woman. But I am what I have been, what I told you I was, and have come to tell you that I cannot change.' "'I did not ask you about this,' he replied instantly, with sudden resolution, and with an expression of hate, looking straight into her eyes. I presuppose that. Under the influence of anger, he apparently regained control of all his faculties. But as I told you then, and wrote you, he spoke in a sharp, shrill voice, I now repeat that I am not obliged to know this. I ignore it. Not all women are so good as you are, to hasten to give their husbands such very pleasant news. He laid a special stress on the word, Prayatnoya, pleasant. I will ignore it for the present, as long as the world does not know, as long as my name is not dishonored. I, therefore, only warn you that our relations must remain as they always have been, and that only in case of your compromising yourself shall I be forced to take measures to protect my honor. But our relations cannot remain as they have been, said she, with timid accents, looking at him in terror. As she once more saw his undemonstrative gestures, heard his mocking voice with its sharp, childish tones, all the pity that she had begun to feel for him was driven away by the aversion that he inspired, and she had only a feeling of fear, which arose from the fact that she did not see any light in regard to their relations. "'I cannot be your wife, when I—' she began. He laughed with a cold and wicked laugh. It must needs be that the manner of life which you have chosen is reflected in your ideas. I have too much esteem, or contempt, or rather I esteem your past and despise your present, too much for me to accept the interpretation which you put on my words. Anna sighed and bowed her head. Besides, I do not understand how you, having so much independence, he continued, growing excited, and telling your husband up and down of your infidelity, and not finding anything blameworthy in it, as it seems, how can you find anything blameworthy either in the fulfillment of a wife's duties to her husband? Alexey Alexandrovitch, what do you require of me? I require that I may never meet this man here, and that you comport yourself so that neither the world nor our servants can accuse you, that you do not see him. It seems to me that this is little, and in doing this you will enjoy the rights of an honorable wife, though you do not fulfill the obligations. This is all that I have to say to you. Now it is time for me to go. I shall not dine at home. He got up and went to the door. Anna also arose. He silently bowed and allowed her to pass. End of chapter 23
The night spent by Levin on the hayrick was not without its lesson. His way of farming became repugnant to him, and entirely lost its interest. Notwithstanding the excellent crops, never, or at least it seemed to him that never, had there been such failure and such unfriendly relations between him and the muzhiks as this year, and now the reasons for this failure and this animosity were perfectly clear to him. The pleasure which he found in work itself, the resulting acquaintance with the muzhiks, the envy which seized him when he saw them and their lives, the desire to lead such a life himself, which on that night had not been visionary, but real, now that he had thought over all the details necessary to carry out his desire, all this, taken together, had so changed his views in regard to the management of his estate that he could not take the same interest in it as before, and he could not help seeing how these very unpleasant relations with the laborers met him at every new undertaking. The herd of improved cows, like Pava, all the fertilized lands ploughed with European ploughs, nine equal fields set round with young trees, the ninety desyatins covered with dressing well ploughed in, the deep drills and other improvements, all was excellent as far as it concerned only himself, or himself and the people who were in sympathy with him. But now he clearly saw, and his work, his treatise on rural economy, in which the principal element was found to be the labourer, helped him to this conclusion, that his present way of carrying on his estate was only a cruel and wicked struggle between him and the labourers, in which on one side, on his side, was a constant effort to change everything to what he thought a better model, while on the other side was the natural order of things. In this struggle he saw that on his side there were effort and lofty purpose, and on the other no effort or purpose, and that the result was that the estate went from bad to worse, beautiful tools were destroyed, beautiful cattle and lands ruined. The principal objection was the energy absolutely wasted in this matter, and he could not help thinking now, when his thought was laid bare, that the aim of his energies was itself unworthy. In reality, where lay this quarrel? He insisted on having every penny of his own, and he could not help insisting on it, because he was obliged to use his energies to the utmost, otherwise he would not have wherewithal to pay his laborers, and they insisted on working lazily and comfortably, in other words, as they had always done. It was for his interest that every laborer should do his very best, above all, should strive not to break the winnowing machines, the horse-rakes, the threshing machines, so that he might accomplish what he was doing. But the laborer wanted to do his work as easily as possible, with long breathing spaces, with plenty of time for resting, and, what was more, without being bothered to think. This year Levin had this experience at every step. He sent men to mow the clover-fields, selecting the poorer portions to be done first, where the intermixture of grass and wormwood made the crop unfit for seed, and they mowed his best fields, those reserved for seed, justifying themselves by saying that they had done what the overseer ordered, and trying to console him with the assurance that it would make splendid fodder. But he knew that they did this because these fields were the easiest ones to mow. He sent out the haymaking machine, but the muzhiks broke it on the first few rows because the driver, sitting on the box seat, disliked having the arms of the machine waving over his head, and they tried to console him with it by saying, "'Oh, it's all right. The women will do the work easy enough.' 
the new ploughs were condemned as good for nothing, because the music did not think to raise the blade on turning a corner, but wrenched it round through the soil, thus tearing up the land and straining the horses, and here again they urged Levin to have patience with them. The horses strayed into the wheat, for the reason that no one would act regularly as night watchmen, the musics, in spite of strict orders to the contrary, insisting on taking the duty in turns, and Vanka, who had been at work all day, fell asleep during his watch. When accused, he acknowledged his fault and only said, Do what you please with me. Three of the best calves were poisoned. They were allowed to get into the clover aftermath without giving them water. The result was that they were blown out and died. But the musics would not believe that it was the clover that did the harm. They tried to console Levin by informing him that one of his neighbors had lost one hundred and twelve head within three days in the same way. All these mishaps took place, not because anyone wished ill either to Levin or to his estate. On the contrary, he knew that the musics loved him and called him a simple-minded gentleman, prostoibarin, which was the highest praise. But these mishaps happened simply because the musics liked to work merrily and carelessly, and his interests were not only strange and incomprehensible to them, but even fatally clashed with what they thought their own true interests. For a long time Levin had felt that there was something unsatisfactory in his methods. He saw that his canoe was leaking, but he could not find the leaks, and he did not search for them, perhaps on purpose to deceive himself. Nothing would be left to him if he should allow his illusions to perish. But now he could no longer deceive himself. Not only had his system of management become uninteresting, but it had begun actually to disgust him, and he felt he could no longer continue it. Besides all this, Kitty Sherbatsky was within ten versts of him, and he wanted to see her, and could not. Darya Alexandrovna Oblonskaya, when he called on her, invited him to come, to come with the express purpose of renewing his offer to her sister, who, as she pretended to think, now cared for him. Levin himself, after he caught the glimpse of Kitty Sherbatsky, felt that he had not ceased to love her, but he could not go to the Oblonskys, because he knew that she was there. The fact that he had offered himself, and she had refused him, put an insurmountable barrier between them. "'I cannot ask her to be my wife, simply because she cannot be the wife of the man she wanted,' he said to himself. The thought of this made him cold and hostile toward her. "'I have not the strength to go and talk with her without a sense of reproach, to look at her without angry feelings, and she would feel even more incensed against me, and justly so.' And besides, how can I go there now, after what Darya Alexandrovna told me? How can I help showing that I know what she told me? That I go with magnanimity, to pardon her, to be reconciled to her. I, in her presence, play the role of a pardoning and honor-conferring lover to her. Why did Darya Alexandrovna tell me that? If I had met her accidentally, then perhaps everything might have been arranged of itself. But now it is impossible." Impossible. Darya Alexandrovna sent him a note asking the loan of a side-saddle for Kitty. They tell me you have a saddle, she wrote. I hope that you will bring it yourself. This was too much for him. How could a sensible woman of any delicacy so lower her sister? He wrote ten notes and tore them all up, and then sent the saddle without any reply. To write that he would come was impossible, because he could not come. To write that he could not come, because he was busy, 
or was going away somewhere, was still worse. So he sent the saddle without any reply, and, with a consciousness that he was doing something disgraceful, on the next day, leaving the now disagreeable charge of the estate to the overseer, he set off to a distant district, where there were magnificent snipe-marshes, to see his friend Shayavsky, who had lately invited him to fulfil an old project of making him a visit. The snipe-marshes in the district of Surov had long been an attraction to Levin, but on account of his farm-work he had kept postponing his visit there. Now he was glad to escape from the neighbourhood of the Sherbatskys, and especially from his estate, and to go on a hunting expedition, for which all his tribulations was a sovereign remedy. End of chapter 24Part three, chapter twenty-five of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. In the district of Surov there were neither railways nor post roads, and Levin took his own horses and went in a tarantus or travelling carriage. When he was halfway, he stopped to get a meal at the house of a rich muzik. The host, who was a bald, robust old man with a great red beard, growing grey on the cheeks, opened the gate, crowding up against the post to let the trioka enter. Pointing the coachman to a place under the shed in his large, neat, and orderly new courtyard with charred sokas, or wooden ploughs, the old man invited Levin to enter the room. A neatly clad young girl, with galoshes on her bare feet, stooping down, was washing up the floor in the new entry. When she saw Levin's dog, she was startled and screamed, but immediately laughed at her own terror when she found the dog would not bite. With her bare arm she pointed Levin to the living-room, then, stooping down again, she hid her handsome face and continued her scrubbing. "'Will you have the samovar?' she asked. "'Yes, please.' The living-room was large, with a Dutch stove and a partition. Under the sacred images stood a table ornamented with coloured designs, a bench, and two chairs." Near the doorway was a cupboard with dishes. The window-shutters were closed, there were a few flies, and it was so neat that Levin took care that Laska, who had been flying over the road and was covered with splashes of mud, should not soil the floor, and bade her lie down in a corner near the door. After glancing into the living-room, Levin went to the back of the house. A good-looking girl in galoshes, swinging her empty pails on the yoke, ran to get him water from the well. "'Lively there!' gaily shouted the old man to her, and then he turned to Levin. "'So, sir, are you going to see Nikolai Ivanovitch Sviatsky? He often stops with us,' he began to say in his garrulous style, as he leaned on the balustrade of the steps. But just as he was in the midst of telling about his acquaintance with Sviatsky, again the gate creaked on its hinges, and the workmen came in from the fields with their harrows and wooden ploughs. The horses attached to them were fat and in good condition.' The laborers evidently belonged to the family. Two were young fellows, and wore colored cotton shirts and caps. The other two were hired men, and wore shabby shirts. One was an old man, the other middle-aged. The old peasant, starting down from the porch, went to the horses and began to unharness them. "'Where have you been plowing?' "'In the potato fields. We finished with one. You, Fyodot, don't bring the gelding, but leave him at the trough. We'll harness another.' "'Say, Batyushka, shall I tell him to take out the ploughshares, or bring em? 
asked a big-framed, healthy-looking lad, evidently the old peasant's son. "'Put him in the drags,' replied the old man, coiling up the reins and throwing them to the ground. "'Put things in order. Then we'll have dinner.' The handsome girl in galoshes came back to the house with her brimming pails swinging from her shoulders. The other women appeared from different quarters, some young and comely, others old and ugly, with children and without children. The samovar began to sing on the stove. The workmen and the men of the household, having taken out their horses, came in to dinner. Levin, sending for his provisions from the Tarantas, begged the old peasant to take tea with him. "'Well, I have already drunk my tea,' said the old peasant, evidently flattered by the invitation. "'However, for company's sake.' At tea Levin learned the whole history of the old man's domestic economy. Ten years before he had rented of a lady one hundred and twenty desiatins, and the year before had bought them, and he had rented three hundred more of a neighboring landowner. A small portion of this land, and that the poorest, he sublet, but forty desiatins he himself worked with the help of his sons and two hired men. The old peasant complained that all was going bad, but Levin saw that he complained only for form's sake, and that his affairs were flourishing. If they had been bad, he would not have bought land for five hundred roubles, or married off his three sons and his nephew, or built twice after his isba was burned, and each time better. Notwithstanding the old peasant's complaints, it was evident that he felt pride in his prosperity, pride in his sons, in his nephew, his daughters, his horses, his cows, and especially in the fact that he owned all this domain. From his conversation with the old man, Levin learned that he believed in modern improvements. He planted many potatoes, and his potatoes, which Levin saw in the storehouse, he had already dug and brought in, while on Levin's estate they had only begun to dig them. He used the plug on the potato fields, as he called the plough which he got from the proprietor. He sowed wheat. The little detail that the old peasant sowed rye and fed his horses with it especially struck Levin. How many times Levin, seeing this beautiful fodder going to waste on his own estate, had wished to harvest it, but he found it impossible to accomplish it. The music used it, and could not find sufficient praise for it. How do the women do it? Oh, they pile it up on one side, and then the cart comes for it. But with us proprietors everything goes wrong with the hired men, said Levin, filling his teacup and offering it to him. Thank you, replied the old man, taking the cup but refusing the sugar, pointing to the lumps which lay in front of him. "'How can you get along with hired men?' said he. "'It is ruinous. Here's Vyatsky, for example. We know what splendid land, but they don't get decent crops, all from lack of care.' "'Yes, but how do you do with your workmen?' "'It's all among ourselves. We watch everything. Lazybones, off they go. We work with our own hands.' "'But Yushka, Finnegan wants you to give him the tar-water,' said the woman in galoshes, looking in through the door. "'So it is, sir,' said the old man rising, and, having crossed himself many times before the icons, or sacred pictures, he once more thanked Levin and left the room. When Levin went into the dark isba to give orders to his coachman, he found all the men-folks sitting down to dinner. The peasant women were on their feet helping. The healthy-looking young son, with his mouth full of kasha gruel, got off some joke, and all broke into loud guffaws, and more hilariously than the others laughed the woman in galoshes, who was pouring she, or cabbage soup, into a cup. 
it might well be that jolly face of the woman in galoshes cooperated powerfully with the whole impression of orderliness which this peasant home produced on levin but the impression was so strong that levin could never get rid of it and all the way from the old man's to sviatsky's again and again he thought of what he had seen at the farmhouse as something deserving special attention End of chapter twenty five Part three, chapter twenty six of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Sviatsky was Preodivodityel, or Marshal of the Nobility, in his district. He was five years older than Levin and had been married some time. His sister-in-law was an intimate of his family, and to Levin she was a very attractive young lady and Levin knew that Sviatsky and his wife would be very glad for him to marry her. He knew this infallibly, as marriageable young men usually know such things, and he knew also that though he dreamed of marriage, and was sure that this fascinating young lady would make a charming wife, he would sooner have been able to fly to heaven than to marry her, even if he had not been in love with Kitty Sherbatsky. And this knowledge poisoned his pleasure in his prospective visit. On receiving Sviatsky's letter, with his invitation to go hunting, Levin had immediately thought about this, but in spite of it, decided that such views, in regard to him, on the part of Shiatsky, were entirely gratuitous, and he decided to accept the invitation. Moreover, he had in the depths of his soul a strong curiosity to see this girl once more, and experiment on the effect that she would produce on him. Shviatsky's domestic life was in the highest degree pleasant, and Sviatsky himself was the very best type of the proprietor devoted to the affairs of the province, and this fact always interested Levin. He was one of those men that always excited Levin's amazement, whose opinions, very logical, although never self-formed, take one direction, while their lives, perfectly defined and content in their course, take another, absolutely independent of each other, and almost always in opposition." Sviatsky was a thoroughgoing liberal. He despised the nobility, charged the majority of the nobles with secretly, and, from motives of cowardice, opposing emancipation, and he regarded Russia as a rotten country like Turkey, and its government so wretched that he did not permit himself seriously to criticize its acts. And yet he had accepted public office, and attended faithfully to his duties. He never even went out without donning his official cap, with its red border and cockade. He declared that human existence was endurable only abroad, where he was going to live at the first opportunity, but at the same time he carried on in Russia a very complicated estate in the most perfect style, and was interested in all that was going on in Russia, and was fully up with the times. The Russian music, in his eyes, stood between man and monkey, but, when the elections came, he gave his hand to the peasants by preference, and listened to them with the utmost attention. He believed neither in God nor in the devil, but he showed great concern in the questions concerning ameliorating the condition of the clergy, and the diminution of the revenues, and moreover he labored with a special zeal to have his village church kept in repair. In regard to the complete emancipation of woman, and especially her right to work, he sided with the most extreme supporters of this doctrine, but he lived with his wife in such perfect harmony that though they had no children, every one admired them, and he took entire direction of the family affairs, so that his wife did nothing, and could do nothing, 
except in cooperation with him, in order to pass the time as agreeably as possible. If Levin had not been naturally disposed to see the best side of people, the analysis of Sviatsky's character would have caused him no trouble or question. He would have said to himself, fool, or good-for-nothing, and that would have been the end of it. But he could not say fool, durak, because Sviatsky was undoubtedly not only very clever, but also very cultivated and an extraordinarily simple-hearted man, entirely free from conceit. There was no subject which he did not know, but he displayed his knowledge only when it was needed. Still less could he say that he was a good-for-nothing, because Sviatsky was unquestionably an honourable, excellent, sensible man, who was always doing his work cheerfully and alertly, and had apparently never intentionally done anything wrong, or could do anything wrong. Levin tried to comprehend, and could not understand him, and always looked at him and his life as a living enigma. He and Levin had been friends, and therefore Levin allowed himself to study Sviatsky, and tried to trace his view of life to the very source. But this was always an idle task. Every time Levin made the effort to penetrate a little further into the hidden chambers of Sviatsky's mind, he discovered that the man was somewhat confused. A sort of terror showed itself in his eyes, as if he feared that Levin was going to entrap him, and he would give him a good-natured and jolly rebuff. Now, after his disenchantment on the subject of farm management, Levin was especially glad to be at Sviatsky's. To say nothing of the fact that he was always pleasantly impressed by the sight of these doves so contented with themselves and all they possessed, and their comfortable nest, he had a great longing, now that he was so dissatisfied with his own life, to discover the secret of his having such clear, decided, and cheerful views of life. Moreover, Levin knew that he should meet, at Sviatsky's, the proprietors of the neighborhood, and he was especially desirous to talk with them, to hear about their experiences in farm management, about their crops, their way of hiring service, and the like, which, as Levin knew well, it was the fashion to regard as very trifling topics of conversation, but which seemed to him more important than anything else. Perhaps these things were not important during the days of serfdom, or in England. In both those cases conditions are definitely fixed. But with us at the present time, when everything has been overturned, and the new order is only just begun, the question how to regulate these conditions is the only important one in Russia. Such was Levin's conviction. The hunting which Shiavsky gave him was poorer than Levin had expected. The marshes were dry, and the woodcock scarce. Levin walked all day, and bagged only three birds. But in compensation he brought back with him, as always from hunting, a ravenous appetite, capital spirits, and the intellectual excitement which violent physical exercise always gave him. Even when he was out hunting, while, as it would seem, his thoughts were not busy about anything, he kept remembering the old man and his family, and the impression remained with him that there was some peculiar tie between himself and that family. In the evening, at the tea-table in the company of two proprietors, who had come on some business with the marshal, the interesting conversation that he had looked forward to soon began. At the tea-table Levin sat next to the hostess, and had to keep up a conversation with her and her sister who sat opposite him. His hostess was a moon-faced lady, of medium stature and light complexion, all radiant with smiles and dimples. Levin endeavoured, through her, 
to unravel the enigma which her husband's character offered him, but he could not get full control of his thoughts, because opposite to him sat the pretty sister-in-law, in a gown worn, as it seemed to him, for his especial benefit, with a square corsage cut rather low in front, giving a glimpse of a very white bosom. This decollete gown, in spite of the fact that the bosom was very white, or perhaps from the reason that it was very white, stopped the free flow of his thought. He could not help imagining, though of course erroneously, that this display was made for his benefit, and yet he felt that he had no right to look at it, and he tried not to look at it, but he was conscious of being to blame for her wearing such a gown. It seemed to Levin that he was deceiving someone, that he ought to make some kind of an explanation, but that it was an utter impossibility to do it, and so he kept blushing and felt ill at ease, and his constraint communicated itself to the pretty young lady. But the hostess seemed not to notice it, and kept up a very lively conversation. "'You say that my husband does not take an interest in Russian affairs?' she asked. "'On the contrary, he was happy when he was abroad, but not so happy as he is here. Here he feels that he is in his sphere. He has so much to do, and he has the faculty of interesting himself in everything. Oh, you've not been to see our school, have you?' "'Yes, I have. That little house covered with ivy.' "'Yes, it is nasty as work,' said she, glancing at her sister. "'Do you yourself teach?' asked Levin, trying to look at Nastia's face, but feeling that, in spite of himself, he would see the low corsage. "'Yes, I teach, and intend to keep on teaching. But we have an excellent schoolmistress, and we have gymnastics.' "'No, thank you. I will not take any more tea,' said Levin. He felt he was committing a solecism, but he could not keep up the conversation, and he rose in confusion. "'I am very much interested in what they are saying,' he added, and went to the other end of the table, where the host was talking with the two landed proprietors. Sviatsky was sitting with his side toward the table, twirling his cup around with one hand, and with the other stroking his long beard, and lifting it up to his nose, and dropping it again as if he were smelling it. His bright black eyes were fixed with a keen amusement on one of the proprietors, a man with a white moustache, who was complaining bitterly about the peasantry. Levin saw that Sviatsky had an answer ready for the worthy gentleman's comical complaints, and could reduce his arguments to powder if his official position did not compel him to respect the proprietors. The proprietor with the white moustache was evidently a narrow-minded country gentleman, an inveterate opponent of the emancipation, and an old-style farmer. Levin could see the signs of it in his old-fashioned, shiny coat, in his keen, angry eyes, in his well-balanced Russian speech, in his authoritative, slow, and studied manner, and his imperious gestures with his large, handsome, sunburnt hands, on one of which for sole ornament was an old-fashioned wedding-ring. End of chapter 26「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel If only it weren't a pity to abandon what has been done, cost so much labor, it would be better to give up, sell out, go abroad, and hear La Belle Helene, like Nikolai Ivanovitch. The old proprietor was saying, while his intelligent face lighted up with a pleasant smile, there now, but still you don't sell out, said Nikolai Ivanovitch Sviatsky, so you must be well off on the whole. I am well off in one way, 
because I have a home of my own, with board and lodging. Besides, one always hopes that the peasantry will improve. But would you believe it? This drunkenness, this laziness, everything goes to destruction. No horses, no cows. They starve to death. But try to help them. Take them for farmhands. They manage to ruin you. Yes, even before a justice of the peace. But you, too, can complain to the justice of the peace, said Sviatsky. What? I complain. Not for all the world. All such talk shows the complaints are idle. Here, at the mill, they took their hansel and went off. What did the justice of the peace do? Acquitted them. Your only chance is to go to the communal court, to the starshina. The starshina will have the man thrashed for you. He settles things in the old-fashioned way. If it were not for him, you had better sell out, fly to the ends of the world. The proprietor was evidently trying to tease Sviatsky, but Sviatsky not only did not lose his temper, but was much amused. "'Well, we carry on our estates without these measures,' said he, smiling. "'I, and Levin, and he.' He pointed to the other proprietor. "'Yes, but ask Mikhail Petrovitch how his affairs are getting along. Is that a rational way?' demanded the proprietor, especially accenting the word rational." "'My way is very simple,' said Mikhail Petrovitch. "'Thank the Lord. My whole business lies in seeing that the money is ready for the autumn taxes. The muziks come and say, "Batyushka, help us, father. Well, all these muziks are neighbors. I pity him. Well, I advance him the first third. Only I say, remember, children, I help you, and you must help me when I need you. Sowing the oats, getting in the hay, harvesting.' Now I get along with them as with my own family. To be sure, there are some among them who haven't any conscience. Levin, who knew of old about these patriarchal traditions, exchanged glances with Sviatsky, and interrupting Mikhail Petrovitch, he said, How would you advise? Addressing the old proprietor with the grey moustache. How do you think one's estate ought to be managed? Well, manage it just as Mikhail Petrovitch does. Either give half the land to the muziks, or go shares with them. That is possible. But, all the same, the wealth of the country is growing less and less. Places on my lands, which in the old time of serfage, under good management, produced ninefold, now produce only threefold. Emancipation has ruined Russia. Sviatsky looked at Levin with smiling eyes, and even made a scarcely noticeable gesture to express his disdain. But Levin did not find the old proprietor's words ridiculous. He understood them better than he understood Sviatsky. Much that the old man said in his complaint, that Russia was ruined by the emancipation, seemed to him true. For him it was novel and unanswerable. The proprietor evidently expressed his honest thought, a thought which arose not from any desire to show an idle wit, but from the conditions of his life which had been spent in the country, where he could see the question practically from every side. "'The fact is, please to acknowledge,' continued the old proprietor, who evidently wished to show that he was not an enemy of civilization. "'All progress is accomplished by force alone. Take the reforms of Peter, of Catherine, of Alexander. Take European history itself. Still more so for progress in agriculture. The potato, for instance, to introduce potatoes into Russia required force. We have not always ploughed with iron ploughs, 
Perhaps they have been introduced into our domains, but it required force. Now, until recently, when we had control over our serfs, we proprietors could conduct our affairs with all sort of improvements, drawing-rooms and winnowing-machines and dung-carts, all sorts of tools. We could introduce, because we had the power, and the musics at first would oppose, and then would imitate us. But now, by the abrogation of serfage, they have taken away our authority, and so our estates, now that everything is reduced to the same level, must necessarily sink back to the condition of primitive barbarism. This is my view of it. Yes, but why? If that were rational, then you could keep on with your improvements by aid of hired labor, said Sviatsky. We have no power. How could I, allow me to ask? This, this is the working force, the chief element in the problem before us, thought Levin. With hired men. Hired men will not work well, or work with good tools. Our laborers know how to do only one thing, to drink like pigs, and, when they are drunk, to ruin everything you entrust them with. They water your horses to death, destroy your best harnesses, take the tires off your wheels, and sell them to get drunk, and stick bolts into your winnowing machines so as to render them useless. Everything that is not done in their way is nauseous to them, and thus the affairs of our estates go from bad to worse. The lands are neglected, and go to weeds, or else are abandoned to the musics. Instead of producing millions of tetchverts of wheat, you can raise only a few hundred thousand. The public wealth is diminishing. If they were going to free the serfs, they should have done it gradually. And he developed his own scheme of emancipation, whereby all these difficulties would have been avoided. This plan did not interest Levin. But when the gentleman had finished, he returned to his first proposition, with the hope of inducing Sviatsky to tell what he seriously thought about it. He said, addressing Sviatsky, It is very true that the level of our agriculture is growing lower and lower, and that in our present relations with the peasantry it is impossible to carry on our estates rationally, he said. I am not of that opinion, said Sviatsky, seriously. I only see that we are not up to the point of managing our estates, and that, on the contrary, since serfage was abolished, agriculture has decayed. I argue that in those days it was very wretched and very low. We never had any machines, or good oxen, or decent supervision. We did not even know how to make up our accounts. Ask a proprietor. He could not tell you what a thing cost, or what it would bring him. Italian bookkeeping said the old proprietor, ironically. Reckon all you please, and get things mixed as much as you please. There will be no profit in it. Why get things mixed up? Your miserable flail, your Russian topchachek, will break all to pieces. My steam-thresher will not break to pieces. Then your wretched nags, how are they? A puny breed that you can pull by the tails comes to nothing. But our petcherons are vigorous horses. They are worth something." And so with everything. Our agriculture always needed to be helped forward. Yes, but it would need some power, Nikolai Ivanovitch. Very well for you, but when one has one son at the university, and several others at school, as I have, he can't afford to buy percherons. There are banks on purpose. To have my last goods and chattels sold under the hammer, no thank you. I don't agree that it is necessary or possible to lift the level of agriculture much higher, said Levin. I am much interested in this question, and I have the means, 
but I cannot do anything. As for banks, I don't know whom they profit. Up to the present time, whatever I have spent on my estate has resulted only in loss. Cattle, loss. Machines, loss. That is true, said the old proprietor with the grey moustache, laughing with hearty satisfaction. And I am not the only man, continued Levin. I call to mind all those who have made experiments in the rational manner. All, with few exceptions, have come out of it with losses. Will you admit that your farming is profitable? He asked, and at that instant he detected in Sviatsky's face that transient expression of embarrassment which he noticed when he wanted to penetrate further into the inner chambers of Sviatsky's mind. However, the question was not entirely fair play on Levin's part. His hostess had told him at tea that they had just had a German expert up from Moscow, who, for five hundred roubles fee, agreed to put the bookkeeping of the estate in order, and he found that there had been a net loss of more than three thousand roubles. She could not remember exactly how much, but the German accountant had calculated it to within forty kopecks. The old proprietor smiled when he heard Levin's question about the profits of Sviatsky's management. It was evident that he knew about the state of his neighbor's finances. "'Maybe it is unprofitable,' replied Sviatsky. "'This only proves that either I am a poor manager, or I sink my capital to increase the revenue.' "'Oh, revenue!' cried Levin, with horror. "'Maybe there is such a thing as revenue in Europe, where the land is better for the labor spent on it. But with us, the more labor spent on it, the worse it is. That is because it exhausts it.' so there is no revenue. How? No revenue? It is a law. Then we are no exceptions to the law. The word renta, revenue, has no clearness for us, and explains nothing, but rather confuses. No. Tell me how the doctrine of revenue can be. Won't you come have some curds? Masha, send us some curds or some raspberries, said Sviatsky to his wife. Raspberries have lasted unusually late this year." and with his usual jovial disposition of soul, Sviatsky got up and went out, evidently assuming that the discussion was ended, while for Levin it seemed that it had only just begun. Levin was now left with the old proprietor, and continued to talk with him, endeavoring to prove to him that all the trouble arose from the fact that we did not try to understand our laborers' habits and peculiarities. But the old proprietor, like all people accustomed to think alone and for himself, found it difficult to enter into the thought of another, and clung firmly to his own opinions. He declared that the Russian music was a pig, and loved swinishness, and that it needed force or else a stick to drive him out of his swinishness. But we are such liberals that we have suddenly swapped off the thousand-year-old stick for these lawyers and jails, where the good-for-nothing, stinking music, gets fed on good soup, and has his pure air by the cubic foot." why asked levin wishing to get back to the question do you think that it is impossible to reach an equilibrium which will utilize the forces of the laborer and render them productive that will never come about with the russian people there is no force replied the proprietor why could not new conditions be found asked sviatsky who had been eating his curds and smoking a cigarette and now approached the two disputants all the needful forms are ready for use and well learned that relic of barbarism, the primitive commune where each member is responsible for all, is falling to pieces of its own weight. The right of holding serfs has been abolished. Now there remains only free labor, and its forms are at hand. 
the day laborer, the journeyman, the ordinary farmer, and you can't get rid of this. But Europe is discontented with these forms. Yes, and perhaps discontent will find new ones, and will progress, probably. This is all I say about that, said Levin. Why should we not seek for them on our side? Because it would be much the same as our pretending to invent new methods of constructing railways. Our methods are all ready. All we have to do is to apply them. But if they do not suit us, if they are hurtful, Levin insisted. And again he saw the frightened look in Sviatsky's eyes. Well, this. We throw up our caps. We follow wherever Europe leads. All this I know. But tell me, are you acquainted with all that is going on in Europe about the organization of labor? No, I know very little. This question is now occupying the best minds in Europe. Schultz de Litzk and his school, then all this prodigious literature on the labor question, the tendencies of La Salle, the most radical of all of them, the Mulehausen organization, this all is a fact, you surely must know. I have an idea of it, but it's very vague. No, you only say so. You know all this as well as I do. I don't set up to be a professor of social science, but these things interest me, and I assure you, if they interest you, you should go into them. But where do they lead you? Beg pardon? The two proprietors got up, and Sviatsky, again arresting Levin in his disagreeable habit of looking into the inner chambers of his mind, went out to bid his guests good-bye. End of chapter 27「Part three, chapter twenty eight of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin spent the evening with the ladies and found it unendurably stupid. His mind was stirred as never before at the thought that the dissatisfaction he felt in the administration of his estate was not peculiar to himself but was a general condition to which affairs in Russia had evolved and that an organization of labor, whereby the work would be carried on in such a manner as he saw at the musics on the highway, was not an illusion, but a problem to be solved. And it seemed to him that he could settle this problem, and that he must attempt to do it. Levin bade the ladies good-night, promising to go with them the following morning for a ride to visit some interesting spots in the Crown Woods. Before going to bed, he went to the library, to get some of the books on the labor question which Sviatsky had recommended. Sviatsky's library was an enormous room, lined with bookshelves, and having two tables, one a massive writing-table, standing in the center of the room, and the other a round one, laden with recent numbers of journals and reviews in different languages, arranged about a lamp. Near the writing-table was a cabinet, stioka, containing drawers inscribed with gilt lettering for the reception of various documents. Sviatsky got the volumes and sat down in a rocking-chair. "'What is that you are looking at?' he asked of Levin, who was standing by the round table and turning the leaves of a review. Levin held up the review. "'Oh, yes, that is a very interesting article indeed. It argues,' he continued with gay animation, "'that the principal culprit in the partition of Poland was not Frederick, after all. It appears—' and he gave with the clearness characteristic of him a digest of these new and important discoveries. Although Levin was now more interested in the question of farm management than in anything, he asked himself, as he listened to his friend, What is he in reality? 
and why, why does the partition of Poland interest him? When Sviatsky had finished, Levin could not help saying, Well, and what of it? But he had nothing to say. It was interesting simply from the fact that it argued. But Sviatsky did not explain, and did not think it necessary to explain, why it was interesting to him. Well, but the irascible old proprietor interested me very much, said Levin, sighing. He's sensible, and a good deal of what he says is true. Ah, don't speak of it. He is a confirmed slaveholder at heart, like the rest of them. With you at their head. Yes, only I am trying to lead them in the other direction, replied Sviatsky, laughing. His argument struck me very forcibly, said Levin. He is right when he says that our affairs, that is, the rational management, cannot succeed, that the only kind that can succeed is the money-lending system like that of the other proprietor, or, in other words, the one that is the simplest. Who is to blame for this? We ourselves, of course, but then it is not true that it does not succeed. It succeeds with Vasilchikov, the mill. But still I don't know what surprises you about it. The peasantry stand on such a low plane of development, both materially and morally, that it is evident they'll oppose everything that is strange to them. In Europe the rational management succeeds because the people are civilized. In the first place, we must civilize our peasantry. That's the point. But how will you civilize them? To civilize the people, three things are necessary. Schools, schools, and schools. But you yourself say the peasantry stand on a low plane of material development. What good will schools do you in that respect? Do you know, you remind me of a story of the advice given to a sick man. You had better try a purgative. He tried it and grew worse. Apply leeches. He applied them and grew worse. Well, then, pray to God. He tried it. He grew worse. So it is with you. I say political economy. You say you're worse for it. I suggest socialism. Worse still. Education? Still worse. Yes, but how can schools help? They will create other needs. But this is the very thing I could never understand, replied Levin vehemently. In what way will schools help the peasantry to better their material condition? You say that schools, education, will create new needs. So much the worse, because they will not have the ability to satisfy them, and I could never see how a knowledge of addition and subtraction, and the catechism, could help them to better themselves materially. Day before yesterday I met a peasant woman with a baby at the breast, and I asked her where she was going. She said she had been to the babkas. The child had a crying fit, and I took him to be cured. I asked, how did the babka cure the crying fit? She set him on a hen roost and muttered something. Well there, cried Sviatsky, laughing heartily, you yourself confess it. In order to teach them that they can't cure children by setting them on hen roosts, you must— Ah, no, interrupted Levin, with some vexation. Your remedy of schools for the people I only compared to the babka's method of curing. The peasantry are poor and uncivilized. This we see as plainly as the woman saw her child's distress because he was crying. But that schools can raise them from their wretchedness is as inconceivable as the hen-roost cure for sick children. You must first remedy the cause of the poverty. Well, in this at least you agree with Spencer, whom you do not like. He says that civilization can result from increased happiness and comfort in life, from frequent ablutions, but not by learning to read and cipher. There now. I am very glad, or rather very sorry, if I am in accord with Spencer. 
but this I have felt for a long time. Schools cannot help. The only help can come from some economical organization, whereby the peasantry will be richer, will have more leisure. Then schools also will come. Nevertheless, schools are obligatory now all over Europe. But how would you harmonize this with Spencer's ideas? asked Levin. But into Sviatsky's eyes again came the troubled expression, and he said with a smile, No, the story of the crying fit was capital. Is it possible that you heard it yourself? Levin saw that there was no connection between this man's life and his thoughts. Evidently it was perfectly indifferent to him where his conclusions led him. Only the process of reasoning was what appealed to him, and it was disagreeable to him when this process of reasoning led him into some stupid, blind alley. This was what he did not like, and he avoided it by leading the conversation to some bright and agreeable topic. All the impressions of this day, including those which arose from his visit to the old music, and which seemed somehow to give a new basis to his thoughts, troubled Levin profoundly. This genial Sviatsky, who kept his thoughts for general use and evidently had entirely different principles for the conduct of his life, keeping them hidden from Levin, while at the same time he and the majority of men, the throng whose name is Legion, seemed to be ruled by the general consensus of opinions by means of ideas strange to him. The testy old proprietor, perfectly right in his judicious views of life, but wrong in despising one entire class in Russia, and that perhaps the best. His own discontent with his activity, and the confused hope of setting things right at last, all this excited and disturbed him. Levin retired to his room, and lay down on his springy mattress, which unexpectedly exposed his arms and legs every time he moved. But it was long before he could get to sleep. His conversation with Sviatsky, though many good things were said, did not interest him, but the old proprietor's arguments haunted him. He involuntarily remembered every word that he said, and his imagination supplied the answer. Yes, I ought to have replied to him. You say that our management is not succeeding, because the music despises all improvements, and that force must be applied to them. But if our estates were not retrograding, even where these improvements are not found, you would be right but advance is made only where the laborer works in conformity with his own customs, as at the old man's by the roadside. Our general dissatisfaction with our management proves that either we or the laborers are at fault. We have long been losing, both by our own methods and by European methods, by neglecting the qualities of the laboring force. Let us be willing to acknowledge that the laboring force is not ideal as a force, but is the Russian music with his instincts and we shall then be able to manage our estates in conformity with this, I should have said to him. Imagine that you are carrying on an estate like that of my old man by the roadside, that you had found a way of interesting your laborers in the success of their work, and had found that by means of improvements, such as they would acknowledge to be improvements, you had succeeded in doubling or trebling your returns without exhausting the soil. Then suppose you make a division and give a half to your working force." the residue which you would have would be larger, and that which would come to the working force would be larger. But to do this there must be a coming down from anything like ideal management, and the laborers must be interested in the success of the management. How can it be done? This is a question of details, but there is no doubt that it is possible. This idea kept Levin in a state of agitation. Half the night he did not sleep, 
thinking of the details connected with carrying out his new plans and schemes. He had not intended to leave so soon, but now he decided to go home on the morrow. Moreover, the memory of the young lady with the open dress came over him with a strange sense of shame and disgust. But the main thing that decided him was his desire to lay before his musics his new project before the autumn harvest, so that they might reap under the new conditions. He decided to reform his whole method of administration. End of chapter 28 Part 3, Chapter 29 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel the carrying out of Levin's plan offered many difficulties, but he persevered, and finally succeeded in persuading himself without self-deception that the enterprise was worth the labor, even though he should not succeed in doing all that he wanted to do. One of the principal obstacles which met him was the fact that his estate was already in running order, and that it was impossible to come to a sudden stop and begin anew, but that he had to remodel his machine while it was going. When he reached home in the evening, he summoned his overseer and explained to him his plans. The overseer received with undisguised satisfaction all the details of this scheme, as far as they showed that all that had been done hitherto was absurd and unproductive. The overseer declared that he had long ago told him so, but that no one would listen to him. But when it came to Levin's proposition to share the profits of the estate with the laborers on the basis of an association, the overseer put on an expression of the deepest melancholy, and immediately began to speak of the necessity of bringing in the last sheaves of wheat, and commencing the second ploughing, and Levin felt that now was not a propitious time. On conversing with the musics about his project of dividing with them the products of the earth, he found that here his chief difficulty lay in the fact that they were too much occupied with their daily tasks to comprehend the advantages and disadvantages of his enterprise. A simple-minded music, Ivan the herdsman, seemed to comprehend and to approve Levin's proposal to share with him the profits of the cattle. But whenever Levin went on to speak of the advantages that would result, Ivan's face grew troubled, and, without waiting to hear Levin out, he would hurry off to attend to some work that could not be postponed, either to pitch the hay from the pens, or to draw water, or to clear away the manure." Another obstacle consisted in the inveterate distrust of the peasants, who would not believe that a proprietor could have any other aim than to get all he could out of them. They were firmly convinced, in spite of all he could say, that his real purpose was hidden. They, on their side, in expressing their opinions, had much to say, but they carefully guarded against telling what their actual object was. Levin came to the conclusion that the irate proprietor was right in saying that the peasants demanded, as the first and indispensable condition for any arrangement, that they should never be bound to any of the new agricultural methods or to use the improved tools. They agreed that the new-fashioned plough worked better, that the weed extributor was more successful, but they invented a thousand reasons why they should not use them, and— Although he had made up his mind that there must be a coming down from anything like ideal management, he felt deep regret to give up improvements, the advantages of which were so evident. But in spite of all these difficulties, he persevered, and by autumn the new arrangement was in working order, or at least seemed to be. At first Levin intended to give up his whole domain, just as it was, to the musics, 
the laborers, and overseer on the new conditions of association. But very soon he found that this was impracticable, and he made up his mind to divide the management of the estate. The cattle, the garden, the kitchen garden, the hayfields, and some lands fenced off into several lots were to be reckoned as special and separate divisions. Ivan, the simple-minded herdsman, who seemed to Levin better fitted than anyone else, formed an artel, or association, composed of the members of his family, and took charge of the cattle-yard. A distant field, which for eight years had been lying fallow, was taken by the shrewd carpenter, Fyodor Ruzinov, who joined with him seven families of musics, and the music Shereyev entered into the same arrangements for superintending the gardens. All the rest was left as it had been, but these three divisions constituted the beginning of the new arrangement, and they kept Levin very busy. It was true that matters were not carried on in the cattle-yard any better than before, and that Ivan was obstinate in his opposition to giving the cows a warm shelter, and to butter made of sweet cream, asserting that cows kept in a cold place required less feed, and that butter made of sour cream was made quicker, and he demanded his wages as before, and he was not at all interested in the fact that the money that he received was not his wages, but his share of the profits of the association. It was true that Ruzinov and his associates did not give the fields a second ploughing, as they had been advised to do, and excused themselves on the ground that they had no time. It was true that the musics of this company, although they had agreed to take this work under the new conditions, called this land, not common land, but shared land, and the musics and Ruzinov himself said to Levin, If you would take money for the land, it would be less bother for you, and that would let us out. Moreover, these musics kept putting off under various pretexts the building of the cattle-yard and barn, and did not get it done till winter, though they had agreed to build it immediately. It was true that Shereyev tried to exchange for a trifle with the musics the products of the gardens which he had undertaken to manage. He evidently had a wrong notion, and a purposefully wrong notion, of the conditions under which he had taken the land. It was true that often, in talking with the musics and explaining to them all the advantages of the undertaking, Levin was conscious that all they heard was the sound of his voice, that they were firmly convinced that they were too shrewd to let him deceive them. He was especially conscious of this when talking with the cleverest of the musics, Ruzinov. He noticed in the man's eye a gleam which betrayed evident scorn for Levin, and a firm conviction that if anyone was to be cheated it was not he, Ruzinov. But, in spite of all these drawbacks, Levin felt that he was making progress, and that if he rigorously kept his accounts and persevered, he should be able to show his associates at the end of the year that the new order of things could bring excellent results. All this business, together with his work in connection with the rest of his estate, which still remained in his own hands, and together with his work in the library, on his new book, so filled his time during the summer that he scarcely ever went out, even to hunt. Toward the end of August he learned through the man that had brought back the saddle that the Oblonskys had returned to Moscow. By not having replied to Darya Alexandrovna's letter, by his rudeness which he could not remember without a flush of shame, he felt that he had burnt his ships, and he never again could go to them. In exactly the same way he owed apologies to Sviatsky for having left his house without bidding him good-bye. Neither would he again dare to go to Sviatsky's. But now all this was a matter of indifference to him. He was more interested and absorbed in his new scheme of managing his estate than in anything that he had ever attempted. He finished the books which Sviatsky had lent him, 
and others on political economy and socialism, which he had sent for. In the books on political economy, in Mill, for example, which he studied first with eagerness, hoping every minute to find a solution of the questions which occupied him, he found laws deduced from the position of European husbandry, but he could not see how these laws could be profitably applied to Russian conditions. He found a similar lack in the books of the socialist writers. Either they were beautiful but impracticable fancies, such as he dreamed when he was a student, or modifications of that situation of things applicable to Europe, but offering no solution for the agrarian question in Russia. Political economy said that the laws by which the wealth of Europe was developed and would develop were universal and fixed. Socialistic teachings said that progress according to these laws would lead to destruction, but neither school gave him any answer or as much as a hint on the means of leading him and all the Russian musics and agriculturalists with their millions of hands and of destians to more successful methods of reaching prosperity. As he was already involved in this enterprise, he conscientiously read through everything that bore on the subject and decided in autumn to go abroad and study the matter on the spot, so that he might not have with this question the experience that had so often met him with various questions in the past. How many times in a discussion he had just begun to understand his opponent's thought and to expound his own, when suddenly the question would be asked, But Kaufman, Jones, Dubois, Mitchell, you have not read them. Read them. They have worked out this question. He saw clearly now that Kaufman and Mitchell could not tell him anything. He knew what he wanted. He saw that Russia possessed an admirable soil and admirable workmen, and that in certain cases, as with the music by the roadside, the land and the laborers could produce abundantly, but that in the majority of cases, when capital was spent upon them in the European manner, they produced little, and that this resulted entirely from the fact that the laborers liked to work, and work well, only in their own way, and that this contrast was not the result of chance, but was permanent and based on the very nature of the people. He thought that the Russian people, which was destined to colonize and cultivate immense unoccupied spaces, would consciously, until all these lands were occupied, hold to these methods as necessary to them, and that these methods were not so bad as they were generally considered. And he wanted to demonstrate this theoretically in his book, and practically on his estate. End of chapter 29「Part 3, Chapter 30 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne Spiegel. Toward the end of September the lumber was brought for the construction of a barn on the Artel land, and the butter was sold, and showed a profit. The new administration, on the whole, worked admirably in practice, or at least it seemed so to Levin. But in order to explain the whole subject into a clear light theoretically, and to finish his treatise, which Levin imagined was likely not only to revolutionize political economy, but even to annihilate this science, and to make the beginnings of a new one, treating of the relations of the peasantry to the soil, he felt that it was necessary to go abroad, and to learn, from observation on the spot, all that was going on in that direction, and to find conclusive proofs that all that was done there was not the right thing. He was only waiting for the delivery of the wheat to get his money and make the journey. But the autumn rains set in, 
and portions of the wheat and potatoes were not as yet garnered. All work was at a standstill, and it was impossible to deliver the wheat. The roads were impracticable, two mills were washed away by the freshet, and the weather kept growing worse and worse. But on the morning of October 12th the sun came out, and Levin, hoping for a change in the weather, began resolutely to prepare for his journey. He sent the overseer to the merchant to negotiate for the sale of the wheat, and he himself went out for a tour of inspection of the estate, in order to make the last remaining arrangements for his journey. Having accomplished all that he wished, he returned at nightfall, wet from the rivulets that trickled from his waterproof down his neck and inside his high boots, but in a happy and animated frame of mind. Toward evening the storm increased. The hail pelted so violently the drenched horse that she shook her ears and her head and went sideways. But Levin, protected by his bachelic, felt comfortable enough, and he cheerfully gazed around him, now at the muddy streams running down the wheel-tracks, now at the raindrops trickling down every bare twig, now at the white spots where the hail had not yet melted on the planks of the bridge, now at the dry but still pulpy leaf clinging with its stout stem to the denuded elm. In spite of the gloomy aspect of nature, he felt in particularly good spirits. His talks with the peasants in a distant village convinced him that they were beginning to get used to his new arrangements, and an old Dvornik, at whose house he stopped to dry himself, evidently approved of his plan, and wanted to join the association for the purchase of cattle. "'What is required is to go straight to my goal, and I shall succeed,' thought Levin. "'But the labor and the pains have an object. I am not working for myself alone, but the question concerns the good of all. The whole way of managing our estates, the condition of all the people, must be absolutely changed. Instead of poverty, universal well-being, contentment, instead of enmity, agreement and union of interests. In a word, a bloodless revolution, but a mighty revolution, beginning in the little circuit of our district, then reaching the province of Russia, the whole world. The conception is so just that it cannot help being fruitful. Yes, indeed, this goal is worth working for, and there is absolutely no significance in the fact that I, Kostya Levin, my own self, a man who went to a ball in a black necktie, and was rejected by a Sherbatsky, am a stupid and a good-for-nothing. That is neither here nor there. I believe that Franklin felt that he was just such a good-for-nothing, and had just as little faith in himself, when he took everything into account. And, probably, he had his Agafya Mihailovna also, to whom he confided his secrets. With such thoughts, Levin reached home in the dark, the overseer, who had been to the merchant, came and handed him a part of the money from the wheat. The agreement with the Dvornik was drawn up, and then the overseer told how he had seen wheat still standing in the field by the road, while his one hundred and sixty stacks, not yet brought in, were nothing in comparison to what others had. After supper, Levin sat down in his chair, as usual, with a book, and as he read he began to think of his projected journey, especially in connection with his book. That evening the whole significance of his undertaking presented itself to him with remarkable clearness, and his ideas fell naturally into flowing periods, which expressed the essence of his thought. "'I must write this down,' he said to himself. "'It must go into a short introduction, though before I thought that was unnecessary.' He got up to go to his writing-table, 
and Laska, who had been lying at his feet, also got up, and, stretching herself, looked at him, as if asking where he was going. But he had no time for writing, for the various superintendents came for their orders, and he had to go to meet them in the anteroom. After giving them their orders, or rather, having made arrangements for their morrow's work, and having received all the musics who came to consult with him, Levin went back to his library, and sat down to his work. Laska lay under the table. Agafya Mihalovna, with her knitting, took her usual place. After writing some time, Levin suddenly arose, and began to walk up and down the room. The memory of Kitty and her refusal, and the recent glimpse of her, came before his imagination with extraordinary vividness. "'Now, there's no need of your getting blue,' said Agafya Mihalovna. "'Now, why do you stay at home? You had better go to the warm springs, if your mind is made up.' "'I'm going day after tomorrow, Agafya Mihalovna. But I had to finish up my business.' "'Your business, indeed. Haven't you given these musics enough already? And they say, our baron is trying to buy some favour from the Tsar. And strange it is. Why do you bother yourself so about the musics?' I am not bothering myself about them. I am doing it for my own good. Agafya Mikhailovna knew all the details of Levin's plans, for he had explained them to her, and he had often had discussions with her, and had not agreed with her comments. But now she entirely misapprehended what he said to her. For your own soul it is certainly important. To think of that is above everything, she said, with a sigh. Here's Parfen Denisuitch. Although he could not read— "'May God give us all to die as he did,' said she, referring to a household servant who had recently died. They confessed him, and gave him extreme unction. "'I did not mean that,' said he. "'I mean that I am working for my own profit. It will be more profitable to me if the musics will work better.' "'There, you will only have your labour for your pains. The lazy will be lazy, and always do things over his left shoulder.' Where he has a conscience, he'll work. If not, nothing will be done. Well, well. But don't you yourself say that Ivan is beginning to look out for the cows better? I say this one thing, replied Agafya Mikhailovna, evidently not at random, but with a keen logical connection of thought. You must get married, that's what. Agafya Mikhailovna's observation about the very matter that preoccupied him angered him and insulted him. He frowned, and, without replying, sat down to his work again, repeating to himself all that he had thought about the importance of his work. Occasionally, amid the silence, he noted the clicking of Agafya Mikhailovna's needles, and, remembering what he did not wish to remember, he would frown. At nine o'clock the sound of bells was heard, and the heavy rumbling of a carriage on the muddy road. "'There, here's some visitors coming to see you. You won't be bored any more.' said Agafya Mikhailovna, rising and going to the door. But Levin stepped ahead of her. His work did not progress now, and he was glad to see any guest. End of chapter 30 Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.